your hands off me, you rotten, rusky son of a bitch! Indiana Jones. About time you showed up. Mom! Sweetheart. Mom. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Indiana Jones Retrospective Series. Oh boy, we're pilgrims in an unholy land. Join Garrett. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, you'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. Matt. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. Oh, a true believer. <laughs> and Adam. May we go home now, please? As they go through all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise. A solution presents itself. With the highly anticipated James Mangold-directed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out this summer. Tickets, please. One by one, the boys will look at the entire evolution of the Harrison Ford starring serial adventures. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What do the guys expect out of this new film? It's not the years, it's the mileage. What brought powerhouses Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together? Nothing shocks me. Is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really as bad as its reputation? Somebody's gonna get hurt! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Okie dokie, Dr. Joe's horn here, potatoes! Raiders of the Lost Ark, released June 12, 1981. Budget on this was between 18 and 20 million dollars. Box office so far, yes. We have more future theatrical experiences to talk about. So far, it has grossed $389.9 million, and this is directed by the one and only Steven Spielberg. Boys, I never thought this day would come. I gotta be honest. Everybody knows I did this series back at the old place. Good times. I had a great time with those guys. Those shows are still rather funny and rather fun to listen to, but I knew once... I heard that there was a new indie coming out. We had started our own thing that we had to cover this series. I think I owed it to you guys, and I think I owed it to the percolated media audience to cover Indiana Jones. Because, yes, at the end of this series, we have a week of release review of Dial of Destiny. And, my God, I could not be more excited. Let's see if my co-arts are also excited. First, my best friend for about 30 years now, the one only Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? Hello. Oh, this is the one I'm excited for. Can't wait to get the boulder rolling on this one. <laughs> it doesn't take long. And no. the one and only, coming straight from the theater, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. Goudreau, how are you doing, sir? He is not exaggerating. I literally yeah. just came to the movie theater. <laughs> just stepped in from the movie theaters. Boys, Indiana Jones. I literally just don't know where to start with this one. It, it's something that I've been wanting to talk about on my own for quite a while. I'm glad we're getting to it. Adam, I'm going to go to you first, sir, since you and I, we grew up together. How are you feeling as we dig into Indiana Jones? How are you feeling going into the series? I'm excited to be able to discuss it, and especially with you two. There's been a couple of films, at least producer-wise, you all have discussed, and director, with Steven Spielberg. I don't think I've been on a single podcast where Spielberg has been the director. Hmm. 
I was I was trying to think about it. So I'm excited in that respect. In addition, it's Raiders of the Lost. Well, it's Indiana Jones series. This film being Raiders of the Lost Ark. Don't fuck with me on that mm-hmm. title. <laughs> I will not have I will not have this Star Wars type discussion once no. again. But I'm excited to go through this because I think throughout the course of this series, we are going to see some of the highest highs, some of the lowest lows. And I think there are going to be some arguments that will be archaeological legends by the time we're done going through this type of series. I really do. And the gentleman on this podcast who probably thinks that both of us belong in a museum, Matthew Goudreau. Goudreau, how are you feeling, sir, as we go into Indiana Jones? Yeah, I got the looks and the brains, much like that monkey. (laughs) Much like Adam, I have not been on a single retrospective in the 10 years I've been working with you where Spielberg has directed a movie. I was not on the Jaws show. I think you're seeing cohorts were on both Jaws and Raiders, if I'm not mistaken, or Indiana Jones, so it makes sense to bring them back. As far as Indiana Jones goes, being the generation I am, I was not alive for any of the first three, and the fourth one was the first one I had seen in a theater, and really that one and this film we're going to talk about are why I think this series has a certain spot in my heart. Those are the two I've seen the most, the first one and the fourth one. Two and three, I have only seen once apiece. Wow. Not to preview my thoughts, but I had the nostalgia for Crystal Skull, ironically, for being the first one in the theater. And I remember how excited my grandparents were and my mom were when that was coming out. So I latched on to that. But Raiders was the first one I saw. I was maybe, let's see, I was probably eight or nine. And it was on either AMC or one of those cable channels. I think it was staying at my great-grandparents' house. And it wasn't even the whole movie. I basically watched from the plane fight to the end. So the last third of the movie. And I was like, what is this? Because I knew who Harrison Ford was at the time. And I'm like, he's not fighting aliens or anything. (laughs) This ain't Star Wars. What is this? And they told me, you know, this is Indiana Jones. So you would have hated my great-grandparents, Adam, because that's what they called it. (laughs) (laughs) Then I, I watched the other two. Not too far after, and then I had to wait a considerable amount of time for a new one. And we, we're doing the same thing now, 15, year, 15 years. God, the fact that it's been 15 years since Kingdom of the Crystal Skull mm. just blows my mind. And I don't know what's scarier, that disparity of time or the fact that we're actually getting a new Indiana Jones movie where Harrison Ford is actually coming back and they didn't just recast him with Chris Pratt like they talked about mm-hmm. doing for so long. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm excited to do this series. Before me and Adam get to our first viewings of this particular film i love the fact that adam is on this podcast with us because adam should we tell the disneyland story oh yeah (laughs) so me and adam went to high school together we graduated same time and for that graduation trip we went to disneyland fantastic idea on the surface little did we know at that time i had a little bit of a condition where um this is to say they were scared I had <laughs> testicular cancer to the point where I had a cyst where stuff gets twisted and it really, really hurts to the point where you're swollen like crazy. But even with this condition, I'm walking around this fucking park. All right. And why are we walking around this park? Me and Adam are trying to impress a girl. <laughs> <laughs> a girl we met on the bus. For the life of us, we never seen this girl before. She didn't go to our school. Somehow she ended up on our trip. And we walked around the park with this girl. And we're walking, walking, and I am in dire pain. But <laughs> we wanted to impress this girl. I think Adam let her borrow his jacket or something. We were mm-hmm. going all out for this chick. And the last thing 
we did before she left the park was she really wanted to go on the Indiana Jones ride. Which was brand, brand new. new. That's how long ago this mm-hmm. was. This was, the, I mean, this this ride had been open a month, maybe two. Yeah. So this was the newest ride is when, yeah, the Indiana Jones ride. I can't remember the name, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just basically the Indiana Jones ride. And we get on this thing. I have heard that this ride is amazing, but this was literally the bumpiest ride I have ever been on in my life because they want to get that minecart feeling going. I mean, we see the boulder. We see all of it. Like, it's all beautiful, but I can't concentrate because I am in so much pain. I am squinting. <laughs> we get off this ride, and I, I can't even walk, and I don't remember it to save my life. But the only reason I went on it was to impress this chick who ended up leaving by helicopter, and we never, ever heard from her again. So the fact that I went on to impress this chick... <laughs> meant that I pretty much uh, I probably set my set my recovery back about a month after the trip to this park yeah yeah that ride and they've actually toned it down since but it that ride's known for if you had a kidney stone it'll break it free if you have testicular torsion it'll ruin the rest of your oh, night and it sure. so did oof Ah, all right. So, Adam, what is your history with this particular movie? Did you watch it on cable? You, you told the story when you saw Star Wars that your your house had all the videotapes all labeled. Was that the same story with this one? Yep, and pretty much the same type of story and kind of both. If it was on TV, God help any of the children that might have gone up and even thought about changing that channel. Definitely VHS tape. I can remember the label of Raiders of the Lost Ark being written on the spine. This was, you might as well have just had this playing on a loop, you know, somewhere in my house. Because if this was on, it was on. I remember my dad just fondly loved this movie, some of the parts of it. It's amazing. I don't know if you quote-unquote creepy that he told me how much he loved Karen Allen. And you're talking about one of my first crushes ever here as well with her. But this was the movie that played in my house, was Raiders of the Lost Ark. More than Star Wars, more than so many other things, this was just a constant. My history with this was weird because I did a lot of like playing around the house and things, and I did a whole bunch of things around the house while my dad watched TV and we were preparing for dinner, and you know I would have a bunch of things going on in the living room while in the kitchen they were preparing dinner. And I was in the living room, which was, you couldn't really see the TV from the living room. You had to kind of peek around the corner. Adam remembers that house. And one day I was in the living room and I see the scene of Sala and Indy lifting the ark up for the first time. And that whole scene and the way it was framed and the way the music just swelled, I looked at it and I'm like, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And that was my first memory of this movie. I don't remember seeing anything after that until they recorded this and it was on a videotape and I fell in love with it way back when. And me and Dad, we saw future incarnations together. We'll talk about that when we get to those movies. But this was, like Adam, probably not as much, but it was on a loop quite a bit in our house. And then I had the Atari game that went with this. Adam, remember the Atari game that came with Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, absolutely. I do. The Pitfall ripoff. Yes. yes, I loved that game. It's not as bad as E.T. It's not good, but oh, I would love to have it again today. Oh, it was so fun as a kid, though. Oh, I played it nonstop. That and E.T., yes, I played E.T. a lot, too, were always being played on that Atari system. So, yeah, this was a big thing with me. Now, Matt, do you really enjoy the Indiana Jones series? You said you've only seen the other ones once each? Two and three, I've seen once a piece. This one I've seen at least in the teens. This one I've seen the most by far. And not to preview my thoughts too much, but 
I think this is the best movie Spielberg has ever made, since I've never really talked much about that, and everyone thinks I hate Spielberg, which is not couldn't be further from the truth. But I think this is the movie that really showcases and was the turning point for where people looked at him. You know, Jaws was unexpected success, despite all the obstacles. And you look at the way this movie's constructed, as far as his his movies are known for being very adventurous, very light when they need to be, but also got some dark shit, especially in this one, more notorious than most. But the level of skill that goes into putting this movie together, as far as the stunt work and the effects, practicality, is such a huge leap for him, even from Close Encounters. So I, I really think this is the most important movie he's ever made. I think this is one of the most important blockbusters ever made for American cinema. And I still think over 40 plus years later, this is still his finest achievement. It's also the first job Michael Bay ever had, but we'll get to that when we get there. (laughs) Yeah. Then that leads right into the making of this because believe it or not, even given the fact that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have made some of the most successful films of all time, this movie was turned down by every studio. Every studio. Ridiculous. It's insane. I think a lot of it had to do with the demands that Lucas made. We talked about that when we went with Star Wars, but he did have certain things that he did not want the studio system involved too much. But when you're asking for this kind of budget, there are things that are going to come down. But they got the deal they wanted. They got with Paramount. And then the thing was, I mean, Steven Spielberg, Matt, you hit it perfectly, where this was the movie that pretty much reignited his career because he had just done 1941. And that film fell way behind schedule, went way over budget, and was a box office disaster. Matt, you've seen that one, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's the worst movie he's made, but it's definitely in the bottom of his canon, and there's a reason why he seldom talks about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think he, I think that film still bothers him. I agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, just, I still do. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, you look at it, he's never done, since then, a straight-up comedy. Uh, the Terminal? Is that as common? I guess not... Not, not in the same way that 1941 is very zany, yeah, okay. a lot of screwball yeah. elements. Good point. You know, he's done stuff certainly lighter. You know, Catch Me If You Can's got some mm-hmm. humor, but it's it's executed much better. Because uh, that was really his attempt to do something like Airplane mm-hmm. or, you know, where spoof movies were going at that time. Uh, so I appreciate that at that time... And he still does this nowadays, which is why I don't think he should retire, is that he'll still experiment with different stuff. He's never been one to just stay in blockbusters. He's made smaller films in between. And unfortunately, he'll sell out every once in a while and make something like Ready Player One, which I think actually if there's a movie that can challenge 1941 as the worst thing he's done, I would honestly say it's that. I was about to say that I appreciated him being experimental with Ready Player One because I feel so far out of his comfort zone yeah maybe one day we'll cover that and we'll, we'll get into that deeply but i mean come on we're doing we're planning on doing video games we got to get to it eventually yeah i mean oh, technically we should have done it in our shining retrospective well no 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 <laughs> just stop just stop <laughs> there's a lot of dc characters in there we can do that mm. <laughs> yes the scripting scripting process for this. Lucas had come up with this idea right after American Graffiti had come out, believe it or not, and he worked on the script with a director by the name of Philip Kaufman. Kaufman was actually Lucas's first choice to direct this. Now, Kaufman does get a story credit here, and he did make a major contribution to the script, which is it was his idea for Indy to go after the Ark of the Covenant. That definitely gives this movie an extra level of dimension, for sure. 
It should also be said, we'll talk about the shoot in Tunisia, which was just hideous for everybody involved, but Spielberg spent a lot of time feeling lonely in Tunisia, and Melissa Matheson, who was Harrison Ford's wife, she came to visit Ford on the set of this movie, and her and Spielberg started the inner workings of a movie called E.T. that they would script together, and that would come out a couple years, uh, one year later, actually. Yeah, this was actually something that, this idea is really something that uh, Lucas is more the spearhead Mm -hmm. of. He really wanted to bring back serialized storytelling. Those early serials from Mm -hmm. the time period that this movie takes place in was very similar to how he approached Star Wars. You know, that came from his affinity for Kurosawa films and Flash Gordon. So it makes sense that Lucas would sort of channel that same energy here. But in the way that we've talked about with George Lucas, where sometimes... He's great with ideas, but he needs other people to execute them. I give him all the credit in the world for not letting his ego get the best of him and not choosing to direct this, passing it off to Spielberg, and also getting Lawrence Kasdan to come in and basically fill in the gaps. They knew the big pieces they wanted to do. They knew all the stunt work, but you still have to put a story around that. Still pulling from Star Wars. But he wasn't always pulling for it because he didn't want to cast Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a yep. bit. Let me let me just go over real quick how this idea pretty much came up. So he was going to have Kaufman direct it. Kaufman went off, did other things, and then Lucas was like, "Okay, I want to concentrate on Star Wars." Star Wars comes out. We reviewed it. Go in the archives, check it out. But before Star Wars is released, like the week before it's released, Lucas and he still does this to this day. He will fly out to. Hawaii, get a vacation out there, and just stay away from all press and everything having to do with the release of the film because he doesn't want to feel the backlash or anything that comes with it. And for this particular trip, he invited Steven Spielberg and his girlfriend at the time, Amy Irving, or maybe they were married. I'm not, I can't remember, but they flew out, and Spielberg was talking about the fact that he was sad about the fact that he has not directed a Bond film. He really wanted to do a James Bond film. And we talked about that when we did that series years ago. And Lucas said, all right, well, if you want to do James Bond, I got something better. And then Lucas gave him this idea, and Spielberg loved it. And he was signed on right after that, and they were able to spearhead this. But that's basically how this idea came about. They were two friends on the beach talking about what they wanted to do next, and here we go. I love the story because both of them tell it absolutely identically as Mm -hmm. well. And I love that Spielberg, though, makes fun of George because he's like, he tells me the story, and he's got this great idea about this adventure. He goes, I got something better than James Bond. I got this archaeologist adventure, Indiana Smith. Yeah. So close, George. So close. Yeah. <laughs> that even, you know, decades later, he's still busting his balls for not mm-hmm. getting the name just quite right. <laughs> All right. Matt hit on it. Let's talk about the casting of this. So the casting uh, was Ford actually was the first choice to play Indy. But Lucas, like Matt mentioned, and like we mentioned when we did Star Wars, did not want Ford to become his quote unquote Bobby. Like Scorsese and Bobby De Niro. Understandable. Understandable. Mm-hmm. I don't resent him for that. I think it's an absolutely, completely decent thought to be like, I'm, I'm not going to be Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Who's I think his he, friend, es- by the especially, way? Yeah, yeah, it is, but be in the way of like Coppola. I could see Coppola being like, uh, you don't want to attach yourself like Marty's doing. Mm-hmm. These guys were all close. I think Spielberg had the same type of trepidation later on in his career that starts working with the same people but then has to stop himself because it gets too gets too convenient maybe is mm-hmm. the right word well then you just you stop writing characters and you write characters with actors exactly. in mind which i think yeah. i think that makes it a, a bigger challenge for you to write because you're 
writing with an archetype in mind versus, in this case, you know, you're creating something entirely from scratch. And it's funny that George Lucas, he didn't want to be like Scorsese, although he's talked about how he wanted to make movies like yeah. that. You know, he wanted to make those small, character-based workshop movies. And they never materialized. I'm sure Coppola said, I tied myself to Marlon Brando, and I regret that decision <laughs> remarkably after coming off Apocalypse Now and almost dying because mm-hmm. of it. George Lucas's wife, Marsha, wife at the time, she really took a liking, as a lot of females did around that time, to a gentleman by the name of Tom Selleck. And she pushed mm-hmm. for the guy to be cast. So Tom Stella came in, had a reading. All these actor readings are available online. You can watch them. And, you know, more people were considered. Jeff Bridges was considered. Tim Matheson was considered. But the reading that Tom Stella gave was perfect, according to them. Crazy story here. So after that reading and a few more interviews, Selleck was hired. They did have him on. Mm -hmm. But Tom Selleck was committed to CBS in a show called Magnum P.I. He got the Brosnan treatment. (laughs) Yes, that's a great point. What it was. Yeah. and that show was not going to continue. No. And then they were like, oh, well, you know what? Let's go ahead and continue it on. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, Lucas and Spielberg, they tried asking CBS to let him out 10 days early so he could film the movie. But CBS saw that Selleck was in demand, and they would not budge. So Tom Selleck was stuck and had to drop out of the role. But here's the funny thing, guys. An actor strike put the show on a three-month hiatus. <laughs> By this time, the film was already in production. But the time that they were on strike would have allowed him to complete the film had he committed. <laughs> great. Absolutely great. And timely. Yeah. For those that know when this is getting discussed. I will say, for those that, if you've never looked at the, the screen test, and it's available on multiple different versions of the DVD, the Blu-ray, streaming, but the screen test with Selleck, and I'll let you discuss the other co-star that he's with, is a pretty damn great screen test. Mm-hmm. It's one of those where you're like, oh, nobody could ever do this role. Nobody could ever do it. Tom Selleck would have been a damn good Indiana Jones. I don't know if he would have been Harrison Ford, but you watch that screen test, and it's impressive. And I think he brings a different a different level than he's done to any other role, except maybe Blue Bloods decades later. But he pretty damn impressive. You know, I remember really liking Magnum P.I. as a kid. I used to watch it with my dad a lot. And it did make Selleck a bona fide star of the 80s. Yet, you're right, Adam. One can't help but wonder, what could have happened had Selleck been able to commit to this film? Yeah, mustaches might have stayed in vogue. <laughs> Who knows? It's a what if, but I'm glad circumstances happened as they occurred. Yep. Yep. So, Lucas relented and realized, again, once everybody around him started talking to him, dude, this is the guy for the role. This is exact. We told this exact same story with Han Solo. <laughs> Lucas is like, okay, I'll bring him on. Yeah, for someone who didn't want to keep working with him, this is his third. Yeah, this is his third mm-hmm. go round with Mr. Ford here. Actually, actually, fourth if you count American Graffiti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with his new one, he'll have done as many Indiana Jones movies as movies where he played Han Solo. Oh yeah, good point. Oh wow. Um, so Ford was brought on a mere three weeks before principal photography began. This movie. Like Star Wars, was nominated for Best Picture. It did win for Best Visual Effects. Obviously, did not win Best Picture, but yeah. Well, to quote a movie that we'll be speaking about in a few weeks, they chose. <laughs> <laughs> well, the studio thought that they chose poorly because once again, much like Star Wars, nobody gave this movie a shot. It was testing against another movie that the three of us have discussed earlier this year, Superman Two. And Superman 2 oh. was getting higher marks. As it turned out, when these two films were playing at the same time, when Superman 2 was sold out, people went to Raiders. <laughs> so, <laughs> they also had For Your Eyes Only, that was being released, and The Great Muppet Caper, that came Ooh. out. 
around the same time too. So God. the studio dang, that's one hell of a summer. yeah. The studio thought this movie had no shot in hell of making them more than say even money. All right, well that is my preamble, boys. Unless you guys have anything to add, we're gonna dive into this story. One more time, but it's amazing that you talked about earlier. Everybody passed, 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 passed. Lucas was able to finagle a deal out of Paramount, finally. But with that deal, Lucas somehow owned like 40%, 40%. of the rights yep. of this. And the person who he finally got to make a deal with was Paramount's head, Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Michael Eisner, decades later, or maybe 10 years later, ends up becoming co-CEO at Disney. Yeah. What's the first thing he does? He makes a Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic how that all ties together. Yeah, it's the whole stunt show. Yeah, I didn't even think about the stunt show in Florida. You're mm-hmm. right. Now that's where my brain goes. 1989. Because um, I've never been to California. Mm-hmm. Still yeah. At Disney. But, you know, that park opened in 89, I think, in Florida. And it's still, I think, the only original attraction since the great movie ride shut down. We open up with a shot of a mountain, which dissolves into the Paramount emblem, and I don't care how long it's been, boys, I still think of this every single time I see the Paramount logo. No matter how many stars they add, no matter how many times it goes over that water, I still think of this fucking movie when that Paramount emblem shows up in any movie I go to. I want to see, time. I want to see if they can get away with adding one more star until someone notices <laughs> that they keep adding stars. <laughs> We're hearing a haunting John Williams intro theme. And then we are introduced to the gang covering this end of the journey. And Spielberg gets a lot of atmosphere in here with a ton of animal sounds serving as background noise. Even seeing fit to include a Star Wars sound effect, which comes out of nowhere. If you listen closely, you can hear it. (laughs) So, so far we're seeing everyone walking away from the camera. But even when they face the camera, Indy is still with his back to us. So Lucas and Spielberg want to keep this character in the shadows for now. We're also like Star Wars, but without a crawl. We're dropped right in the yes, middle of something. Good point. You know, we don't see people getting ready to go do it. We are starting walking through a jungle and not knowing, unless you would have seen a trailer at that time, and trailers were much less exploitive to tell you what was going on. You're just starting on a journey, and you have no clue. And even now, having seen this movie umpteen times, I still think it's a great decision that you're just starting. And you don't know who's who, you don't mm-hmm. know what's going on. But the way this is shot... And the music and the sound work that's going on is top-notch, five seconds in. Yeah, it's great. It's almost identical to Star Wars in that you're thrust into action right away. And this is also a movie, because it's based on serials, there's really only one scene that is entirely expository. Yeah. But that scene is also very important to establish the stakes of the movie, so I'm not against it. And I'm glad yeah. that, you know, this is a movie that could have been bogged down and a lot of character backstory. You know, they could have over-explained the occult aspects. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad that everything is kept with what you need to know. Right down to this scene, this entire opening scene, everything you need to know about this Indiana Jones character, you learn in this opening sequence without any dialogue, really, or him talking about himself. It's all through action. It's very much how Sean Connery's Bond was initially introduced. You saw him acting as an agent, and here you are seeing him act as an actual archaeologist, in quotes. Because some archaeologists call bullshit on these movies They hate this movie with a passion. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I do love about this intro, too, Adam, you mentioned that it's thrusting you right into the danger, but I love the atmosphere that Spielberg's building here. You know, we mentioned in the beginning, but Spielberg really felt the pressure of this movie. He felt the pressure after 1941 to do something really spectacular and something really under budget and something that was shot on time. So he, he still says to this day, this is the most storyboarded movie he's ever done. And I think it definitely shows. Yeah, it does. I, I think second would probably be 
Jurassic Park might have, mm-hmm. might be his second storyboarded movie. And it makes sense given the scale of both of them, but it's it's impressive nevertheless. Like I'm never sitting there going, "Oh, this feels overly choreographed." I like how everything is is shot. And this movie is so influential that I think it caused the next Bond movie with Octopussy to really up their stakes. Mm-hmm. Stunt work, as I talked about on that show, with the whole the train fight, among other things. Yeah. Absolutely. It's everything feels deliberate, but it does not feel pandering and it's over directed. It does it does not feel over directed. I think that's a great compliment I can give it. Definitely feels natural for sure. When we do see our hero, it is when one of his own figuratively stabs him in the back and the guy who will come to know is Indiana Jones, he swings his whip, so we hear that amazing sound effect of his whip, and now he's fully revealed. Boys, how do we like this intro to good old Harrison Ford? as well as how he's handled in this movie. No future sequel talk, please, just in this movie. It's a great intro. It lets you know, hey, yes, you've seen him before. Yes, you've seen him in a blockbuster, but he's different. This gruff look that he has to have disarmed this guy right here. You know, he's dirty. He's gruff. He's got that head tilt going on when we get the review. One one of the best establishing shots of a character in cinema. Everything works with the reveal. And as Matt said, we get so much explanation of who he is, what he is, even at this point before his first reveal. And it works amazingly well. Harrison Ford is superb. I do, as much as a lot of people say they're the same character, I see a massive difference between Han Solo and Indiana Jones. They may be because there's a lot of subtle differences, but I think this is a different character, an original character. He's fantastic. I mean, this is the character you wanted to play as a kid while you were in the yard and in the schoolyard, you wanted to be Indiana Jones, and Harrison Ford is top-notch. In performance, there are different distinctions, but in the characterization on a screenplay level, there's a notable difference between Indiana Jones and how Han Solo is first introduced. Indiana Jones does not kill this guy who tries to shoot him, whereas we see Han Solo has no problem killing people in cold blood. Now, in this movie, obviously, Indiana Jones openly murders people, but... Who's fighting the Nazis and you know self-preservation? So both counts are justifiable, and I and I do think that he plays it differently. He has a different perspective on world weariness, and he also comes off unlike Han Solo, who's kind of a a sleazy womanizer. I think Indiana Jones is considerably more charming. Well, he was written as a womanizer. We'll get into that when we get into those scenes. I agree with you guys. And I think a big difference of this, too, is I think Harrison Ford eventually embraced being Han Solo. But I don't think he was really passionate about those scripts. And we, we mentioned in those podcasts that he did say, George, you can write this shit, but you don't expect me to say it, do you? Here, you could tell that he fell in love with this script the second he read it, because I think he's really into this character. He worked out really hard for this role. And I think that shows. I think he is this character. And with Star Wars, as much as I love Han Solo and love what he does with that role, I think he was more playing a character in that. Here, I think he is the character. So we see a future Dr. Octopus in his first movie role, (laughs) Alfred Molina. They keep walking the trail until they enter the caverns. And there are some great things going on here, like mud leading into a trap and Indy telling Alfred Molina to stay out of the lights, as well as the spiders. Oh, the spiders used to scare me silly as a kid. Ugh, still creep me out. Yeah, Andy doesn't like snakes. I don't like spiders. But it's such an effect and little bits of comedy. Indiana Jones, Doc Ock, which is what I'm going to call him, <laughs> which is funny with the spiders, Spider-Man connection, but gets him to turn around, brushes a few little tarantulas off his back. Melina turns around and he's just yeah. covered in them. 
or flip that. It's a little subtle bit of comedy that also creeps you out, but man, it's done well. Not to just stroke this movie for two hours, but the production design mm. here in this temple, in this cave, is like we had not really seen anything like this, and it's extremely effective. It's immersive. And like you said, we don't know what they're going after here. So we're put right in the middle of this no. event, right in the end of this adventure. We don't know what we're getting into, but we're enthralled by it. And that's very good filmmaking, I think. Funny story about these spiders. Like these spiders on Molina weren't moving at all because they were all male spiders. But once they threw a female spider in there, they started scrambling like crazy. And that's the shot we get in the film. <laughs> yeah, it's like you guys at that video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I imagine she looked at both of you guys and went, snake. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. So Indy swings across, and then we get the shot of the movie and maybe even the franchise as Indy grabs the statue and exchanges it for a bag of sand. I love the suspense going on here, as well as how Williams is painting the pictures with his music. Once again, third series we've done with Williams this year. But I want to go ahead and say this is yet another one of my favorite scores of all time. And that theme is unmistakable. I love John Williams' music in this. Yeah, th everything he does for this series, I think, is equally important as Spielberg's direction. And this movie, this opening sequence, another thing that it establishes that I think is very important is that even though this is a movie about the dangers of supernatural power, uh, they're establishing that everything in nature, both man-made with this temple and through the animal kingdom is designed to kill you. Like, there is always danger in every scenario they're in through this movie. Whether it's here, whether it's the fact that they're digging in the desert and there's heat stroke dehydration, you know, there's being run over later on, there's being torn up by a jet engine, mm. and then it's opening. You know, there's the booby traps, there's the boulder, there's the, the spiders. There is always a sense that danger is around every corner. The score is pretty damn great throughout the entire movie. I'll, I'm going to say there's a major spot in this movie, and it's because it's hit over and over and over. Where And Williams is known to do this. We've discussed it uh, when we talked about Star Wars. He borrows from himself, and there's a major theme in his score that's borrowed directly from, specifically Empire Strikes Back. I'll get there when we get there. But this score is just, it's so iconic, and it it's unbelievable. It's beautiful. One of the things in this scene specifically from a filmmaking shot. One, Douglas Slocum, who the cinematographer for this, mm. unbelievable. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable. And it's funny, we've already discussed Bond. A Bond film was his very next movie. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, he did uh, Never Say Never Ooh. Again. Uh, but he chose for as well. But this is a guy that had shot Pirates of Pizance, the original Italian job, which is shot... I mean, this guy's... he His resume is as long as Liam Neeson's Johnson. Spielberg and Lucas get so much credit, but the the DP, the cinematographer, just ama absolutely amazing. Kind of like Ben Burt, you know. Everything has to work. My favorite shot of this is not when he approaches the idol or when we see it, but it's from the back, and it's only like a quarter view. But when he's pouring the sand yeah. out of the bag, it, Indy's not in shot. You get the idol slightly off focus, but the sand dripping and pouring out of his hand. Something about it. Like those little shots that have no reason to be there but sell the authenticity of what we have going on. It's just, it's great. Talk about Douglas Slocum. There's a scene later on that I think is Spielberg's best use of light of his entire career. And uh, we'll get there when we mm -hmm. get there. So Indy grabs the idol, tips his hat. I like that little touch. 
tips his hat, <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. The rumbling starts. Alfred Molina, he turns on him after he throws him the idol, and he's having trouble pulling himself up the pit. Great set of shots here as Indy grabs this vine, and he thinks he's safe, so he smiles, but he goes sinking even further down right after. <laughs> oh, Ford's playing this so well. And you have to think about it, right, guys? Like, yes, he didn't get the part, but would Selleck be able to sell this amount of charm the way Indy sells it here? Yes, yeah. but I think it would have been more from a direction standpoint. I get a lot of this for Ford is spontaneous, and they just kind of reign with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. Laura, my wife, pointed it out to me. She goes, you know, every time they focus on his face, he's got a smile like he's, he's flirting with somebody. And I do think that's the charm. We get there, that kind of smile that, oh, thank goodness. Oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, he's he's flirting with the camera every time it's zoomed in on his face. And that's Ford. It's all Ford. Mm-hmm. Indy grabs the idol from Afro Molina, who didn't make it, and he's dead at this point. So we'll see him again as Doc right. later on. Well, we, we got to talk about this. Okay. This movie's rated PG. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we have seen uh, there are skeletons in this temple, and we see a... A dummy that is multiple puncture wounds, blood everywhere, eyes wide open. It's amazing this movie did not get an R. There are so many scenes that you could point out that can back that claim up where this needed to be an R rating. <laughs> and then really did. one particular scene in particular did earn it an R rating, but they did something to it to touch it up. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But it's unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah. I read an article about this. This exact topic where one guy, I can't remember the guy's name to save my life, but he mentioned the fact that this was the tipping point for G-rated Disney flicks turning into PG-rated adventure films that were, quote-unquote, made for adults, but kids would love them as well. This was the tipping point right here. Yeah, and I definitely think this movie appeases both sides. Like There is definitely, you know, this is not one of those movies where I would say, you know, don't show this to your kids at all, but I think context is everything. And there is some, you know, in the same way you talk about Disney around this time, you'd get stuff like the Black Cauldron, which was mm-hmm. considerably darker. Like, and, and even Star Wars, you know, we talked about this. There's burned skeletons mm-hmm. in a franchise that Lucas talks about being made for kids. But it's also, a, you got to remember, this was a very different time where helicopter parenting and the MPA, that did not have the power it does now. Or maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we're more conscious about what you could watch versus back then. Because ne- back then it was family-friendly or R in the eyes of people. Like There was nothing, nothing in between. between. Yeah. So, so people see people saw PG, oh, I can take my kids to this. It's sort of like what PG-13 has become, mm-hmm. where you get a movie like The Dark Knight, which is still, that is a R-rated movie masquerading as a PG-13 movie because it has Batman attached to it. This is a full-blown Oh, in a movie that's considerably more graphic than any of the Bond movies we were getting around this time. And I think that goes to show, you know, the relationship between ratings in Europe versus ratings in America. Look at Bond versus Indiana Jones. Bond is considerably more sexual in how those scenes are depicted. But Indiana Jones is so much more violent as far as viscera. Because, look, the villains in this movie... Get deaths that would make Blofeld <laughs> happy he's spending eternity in hell. That he just got dropped into a fucking elevator shaft. You're right. This was that turning point, wasn't it? It's pretty uncanny to think about. 
this is where I think that Europe has got a better rating system. I'll just say yeah. that. I think America's turned so puritanical in the way that it does it, and America's still behind the times with the rating. I still love their system. Yep. Adam, has your son seen this? Oh, yeah. My son's seen it, my daughter has seen it, and they saw it well below the age of what would be PG-13. So, yeah, absolutely, for sure. Matt, how long are you going to wait to show Harrison, his namesake's movie? Another six months. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> so a huge boulder comes crashing down, and oh, my God, this shot of Indy being chased by this boulder on that ride was awesome. It's great here, too. The image of the boulder crashing toward Indy is, I'll go ahead and say it, it's iconic. Spielberg had Ford do this 10, yes, 10 times. Ford did his own stunt. Spielberg, to this day, says he was crazy letting him do it, but Ford, you gotta give him credit, man. The dude wanted to do his own stunts, and he was Tom Cruise before Tom Cruise. He did, I would say, about 90% of these. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a great scene, iconic scene. It is not long. I feel like I remembered him, you know, running from this boulder for a minute. It's, it's like 10 seconds. Yeah. It's one of those things that an image that sticks with you, lasts with you. And when you think about it, and I could see them returning to this thing one day in a TV series, it seals up permanently the cavern that he just explored and, I'll say it, violated. Mm-hmm. What's impressive is not just how short it is, but what I like so much about Indiana Jones in this movie is that he is not Superman. No. He has normal endurance, he takes a beating, and he's always one step behind the villains. That's the important thing. Even in this opening, the guys yeah. that he's working with have the jump on him. Mm-hmm. I, I miss the days when you could write characters like this, your, your male protagonists of these big action movies that are not these indestructible automatons. Nowadays, people would say, oh, we're, we're emasculating our male heroes. No, they're more interesting when they're flawed and they actually have to work at their goals, you know, because there's an alternative version of this movie. If this got made, let's say, in the 90s, where you cash Schwarzenegger yeah. or, or Stallone. I think Stallone's a better parallel where he punches the boulder like Chris Redfield in Resident <laughs> Evil 5 and it just explodes. There is, you know, context is, context is key. <laughs> what a pull. Resident Evil 5. <laughs> We then see Indy crash through spider webs and land right where the island men and Belloc wait for him. Now, let's talk about Belloc. Jonathan Price, he was considered. We talked about him when we did Tomorrow Never Dies. But mm. Steven Spielberg had seen a docudrama called Death of a Princess and really liked this guy, Paul Freeman, and he cast him as Belloc in this. God, I love Belloc. A fantastically delightful villain. I love how smarmy he is as he grabs the idol from Indy and says, Once again, we see there is nothing you have that I cannot possess. And this sets up this rivalry beautifully, and it's another great introduction to a great character. And, that, and by the way, that's a, that, that has become Disney's mantra. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bullock, when we talk about like great movie antagonists, I think this is one that we don't talk about enough because everyone likes to think of the guy with the hand. What's his character's name? Oh, uh, Tote? Yeah, I think he's the person most people think of. Yeah. When you say Raiders villains, like, he's the main Nazi you think of, and Paul Freeman's just the rival archaeologist, but I like how smarty he is. I like that he's always one step ahead and lets him know about it. Of Like, he's that kind of... Uh, he's slightly whiplash if he was actually competent. But yeah, he's great. And the only other thing I've seen Paul Freeman in was two things. He was Ivan Ooze in the Power Rangers movie. Oh, God. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and he was the priest in, if you've ever seen Hot Fuzz? Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, oh, I, I'd love to talk about that movie at some point. Cause that, speaking of James Bond well, in that movie. Yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that trilogy eventually, I'm sure. Yeah, he's great. And again, they didn't feel the need to have Balak ever, like, get into a physical altercation with Indiana Jones. 
One thing I love about Belloc is the fact that he always makes Indy do all the work, and he just reaps the rewards. He swoops in and, he swoops in and takes the credit. Exactly. They should have done the dynamic. They should have instead made Indiana Jones French and <laughs> Belloc American. He is one of my favorite characters in the franchise, and he's just in this film. And it's not just the way he plays it, which is fantastic. I think there's so many layers because of how he's written. One, you know that they have a past. Just this little line right here about there's nothing that you have that Jack cannot take away. You know Indy has a past, Belloc has a past, they've crossed, and they've done this over and over again. But we don't have, oh shit, here we go, we don't have a Disney Plus series explaining the adventures of Indiana Jones and Belloc. Knock on wood, fucking asshole. God, God damn it, that's coming. <laughs> but I love that they have a backstory and you believe it. But I think, and I'm going to give Spielberg a lot of credit on this, there is something about this Frenchman collaborating with the Nazis. Hmm. Spielberg's work for so long, I appreciate most of it, but he's got so much of that, the Holocaust, written in his work. Even when it's not overt, it's something like this. This Frenchman, this evil Frenchman, working with the Nazis for his own purpose. And that's something that happened. You know, that you have these French people who were willing to turn on the world just to get along or to get their ways. And that alone, while it's subtext, is freaking important. It's huge. And I just think he plays it amazingly well throughout the entire part. He's almost like an aristocrat that's just coming through and... It's funny, on its surface, Indiana Jones is nothing but a grave robber, and Belloc is just robbing the grave robber. There's also, to your point about the parallels to the Holocaust, this movie takes place in 1936, which is uh-huh. well before America ever got involved in World War I, World War II, excuse me. Yep. So I think it's sort of like Indiana Jones is sort of the example of, you know, nobody can stay neutral, and America has to justify getting involved in international affairs because the army comes to him. I think that's very interesting. You're right that Spielberg always, that's always been on his mind, and it would not be for another decade plus that he'd make Schindler's List. But I appreciate that that component is actually here, and that the villains are not just strictly the Nazis. And Adam, you said something that I really want to talk about, the fact that we know that their paths have crossed, we just haven't seen it. And I think that's due a lot, and I can't believe we haven't mentioned him until this instant, but I think that's due a lot to the writing of Lawrence Kasdan, who both Lucas and Spielberg brought to do some touch-ups to this. Matt, you might have mentioned him earlier, but we didn't really talk about what he added here. He made a lot of touch-ups on the female protagonist in this movie. He did a lot of things in this that we'll talk about, a lot of line connecting that is really well done, and I don't think we'll get for the rest of the series is this the only one of the franchise that he yes, wrote mm-hmm. yep that definitely shows mm-hmm. well the tracks yeah because i'm trying to think oh yeah you're right because mm. i thought i thought for some reason he was involved in the second one no. but he wasn't and i know i know the fourth one was what, what's his name david Kemp. yeah and i could i could tell you like if this was trivia i could not tell you who wrote last crusade <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we'll talk about that there are stories about that as well but so yeah i, I definitely think Kazin's touch-ups really has a lot to do with well, as you said, Adam, how good the writing is here. So Belloc says that Indy chose the wrong friends. He holds the idol up. Indy takes off. He avoids arrows as he runs through the woods and jumps into the water before yelling at his buddy Jock to start the engines to the plane and take off. <laughs> Some great through-the-tree shots as Indy avoids arrows and gets on the plane as it starts with the sound effect used for the failing of the Millennium Falcon's failed hyperdrive, by the way. That's the sound effect they use for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before we see Indy's major Achilles heel, Jock owns a snake, and Indy is frightened of it. 
This is a great little quirk for this character to have. We've seen him escape danger, but we haven't known what scares or irks him. Now we know, again, another great setup that we'll see paid off later. And this is also, not to make the pun, but a universal thing in screenwriting with characterization is that don't give them quirks unless you're going to either pay it off in some way or make it integral to the story. So this is actually serving a purpose, and again, shows that this character is not this entirely bulletproof guy. Like, he's got a, a pretty common fear of snakes, which is amazing considering you think about all the, the journeys he's been on, likely in a lot of jungles and places where snakes are pretty prominent. So it's amazing he hasn't died up to this well, point. Well, we'll see how that comes about when we get to three. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> I love about it because the, the running through that pasture is just, it's a fun, it's a great scene. I mean, it's, I can't think of getting towards it. I'll walk through an airport and say, jock, start the engine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, it's quirky. You got this, you got this guy here. One, go ahead and visit Jock's Hangar Bar, now at downtown Disney in Florida. Jock's got his own bar oh, there. Shit. It's an Indiana Jones theme oh, restaurant awesome. bar. It's fantastic. Yeah. But it's also the line of dialogue that is given this little scene to establish his fear of snakes, it does not stop the movie to do it. It happens and it feels natural while it's going on, and it pays off later. Top-notch screenwriting, performance, and everything else. You know, we established that he's fearless because of how he handled these tarantulas and the temple and everything else. And right after that, no, he's got this massive fear of snakes. So you, you humanize him after showing, you know, what would have been a superhero moment. You bring him down to Earth. And this shot of him running through the grass as these islanders are chasing him is just great. Because just the look on Ford's face, he brings so much to this. <laughs> and it's been parodied, uh -huh. parodied yeah. in every manner. But it's still, you know, normally when you have something parodied, it takes away. You don't have the specialness of it anymore. No, I still enjoy this so much. Agreed. Though I'll say, these tribesmen shoot like squirrels. <laughs> And this is a scene that I think Gore Babinski's talked about how much he loves this movie because this is sort of like when they're when he jumps in the water that's directly in the second Pirates movie. Oh, is it nice? When they're yeah when they when they escape that bone cage. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Which is funny for the record. I'm I'm surprised maybe this because the Lone Ranger bombed, but I thought Verbinski would have been first in line to do this new one. I agree, but we got your boy to do yeah. it. We'll talk about that. This scene is great, too, because Indy says that he hates snakes, and Jock just exclaims, come on, show a little backbone, will you? A line that used to break my dad up every single time. We cut to a classroom. His other life is as a college professor. He's writing on a board as he gets flirted with by another student who has chosen to write, I love you on her eyelids. <laughs> I love, love you, girl. <laughs> so in the, There's something awesome about In that. the original script... This girl was written to have had a, a liaison with Indy. That was widely cut because I'm not sure how much I could root for somebody who's having sex with another student. This makes Indy out to be sexy to the ladies but not lecherous. And his response is classic, too, when he just looks at her and is just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, he was written to be a womanizer, which he kind of still is. We'll get to that when we get there. He is. But Spielberg and Lucas wanted to give him some dark touches. They wanted him to be an alcoholic. They thought about making him like an over-gambler. He was made out to be much more darker than he turns out to be, and I think a lot of that also, again, has to do with Ford's charm, with the way this character comes off. So they really wanted him to be James Bond. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's <laughs> a great point. Alcoholic, excessive gambler, womanizer, like, it's all there. And apparently, not only was this thing of him hitting on under eight college student. Apparently Marion was in the original script like 13 or 14. 15. She was... Spielberg told Lucas, you better fucking make her older. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. 
which, I mean, you do that now, and it'd be just, I mean, oh God, you would be just held to the fucking fire. But in 81, that might have been accepted. Who knows? Well, look at freaking Labyrinth. Oh, God. Yeah. Jeff mm-hmm. Connolly was, what, 16? Mm-hmm. And David yeah. Bowie was, you know, a grown-ass man. There's some creepy stuff there. Like, the 80s, let's just say the 80s was a weird time. <laughs> it definitely was. That was the period where you could, as the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger has shown, you could do anything you want in the 80s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of seeing Indiana Jones in the classroom. Something about it just resonates with me. I like it. He's competent, clearly, as a professor, but his uncomfortableness when he sees her, he just doesn't feel like he can deal with people on this normal life. You know, he's got a split, not a split personality, but he's got a dual identity. He is a superhero in that way. You know, he's a teacher, he's an archaeologist, and they're different characterizations. But I really, really like seeing Indiana Jones in the tweed. At the college, I just think it's not the type of hero we normally see. And even with only little scenes throughout the series, every time he's a professor, I dig it. I dig it huge. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's wearing glasses, too. I do think they were making that Superman parallel. Oh, totally, because this is sort of a Clark Kent. Because mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of bumbling when he's yep. carrying his, I don't know, blueprints or materials, whatever those are. We'll see yep. later. So there's definitely some cross-cutting. Absolutely. So Indy dismisses his class, and who's waiting for him but Marcus, who is obviously hungry because he takes Indy's apple off his desk. Indy shows Marcus his findings, which didn't include the idol due to Belloc's due diligence. And we walk into a classroom with who else? Porkins. Our third time talking about Porkins on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> on this website. Yeah. yeah. We have done we have done his whole career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a massive bit of exposition, as Matt pointed out earlier, that the audience needs for what we are going to be seeing later. And I love putting these pieces together as a kid. This could be seen as slow moving, but I love it. I love how enthusiastic Ford is while showing the guys how light peeks through the staff of Ra when the sun hits it, and we're getting mentions of the Ten Commandments, Hitler being obsessed with the occult. And someone named Abner, who we'll talk about in a bit. I would call this efficient exposition. Yeah. So before we get to that fourth time, because he was in the quest for peace. Oh, that's right. Yeah, fourth time. Good point. Wow. Uh, so as far as this scene goes, let me start with the, the writing. This is the MI6 briefing equivalent. Mm-hmm. You learn about the all-powerful object that the villains are after. So it, it's very effective. It's difficult to do. Like this exposition is one of the hardest things you can write because you can make it overly monotonous. You know, look at Tenet. I think that is one of the worst examples of doing exposition oh, yeah. in a movie, as I alluded to when we did that movie. But here, it's also building character in two ways. We are seeing Indiana Jones, his knowledge without pulling from, you know, he's not reading from a textbook. This is all stuff he knows from experience. And it's character-based because he talks about how, I don't really believe in this shit, as far as the, the religious aspects of, like, what it can do. He's like, I know scientifically it's buried in the well of souls, because that is based on history. The line between where does history end and theology begin, I think is something that makes Indiana Jones really interesting in this movie, because he's being confronted with that idea of there being a god or otherworldly beings that can affect what he's after. So I like that dynamic in this movie in particular. It's not an outlier because the third one deals with the Holy Grail, and that's Christian-based. But, you know, this is a true biblical object. And again, Spielberg, as a Jew, is emphasizing that, you know, a lot of this comes from the Jewish beliefs. Like he talks about, you know, Moses, how it was carried with the Ten Commandments. 
So I, again, Spielberg is putting himself in this exposition as well. Like this is how to do this scene well. Like this is the best example of combining exposition with actually highlighting your character as a person. Yep, absolutely. One, it's a fun scene, seeing the stuff it really is. I like that Marcus, while Indy's getting more excited, you see him getting slightly more animated, Mm -hmm. Marcus starts smiling, Mm -hmm. because he knows he just hooked Indy in. And as a guy that's here working for the university, he knows he's going to get the collection at the end of this. That's what Marcus is here for. The exposition works. Does it stop to do so? It does. But everything that they go through pays off. I love this giant book. I love that he can randomly open to the page (laughs) that he needs to go to. But these are also just GI men from the U.S., government. We don't know a lot about them until the very, very, very end. The scene, as clumsy as it would be in almost every other hands, works really well in this film. My favorite part is when Indy says, didn't any of you go to Sunday school? (laughs) They all look at him like, huh? (laughs) Next, we get to see the outside of Indy's house as Marcus comes in and says that the board has agreed to let Indy go after the Ark. Little note, originally a girl was in this house when Marcus came over, but like the student earlier, Spielberg said, no, we better not do that. (laughs) <laughs> and you kind of get it because he's in like a smoking yep. jack. I mean, he looks like Hugh Hefner yeah. here when Marcus shows up. <laughs> yeah. This is also when we are hearing Marion's name for the first time and hearing her theme, as well as the arc theme as Marcus warns him that this is unlike anything you've ever gone after before. We're then seeing Indy's gun go right into the suitcase, and I love how this is handled. It's just Indy going, you know I always go prepared, as the gun just goes flying in. <laughs> yeah, you, you... Yeah, clearly... Yeah. This is a second gun because his first one was taken by Belloc. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he makes it known here that, you know, he's flown from one side of this galaxy to the other side, kid. I mean, he doesn't believe in any mystical force, but he's got a blaster by his side. <laughs> we then see Indy get on a plane as drinks are served, and we see another hallmark of the series, a trace of where they are going. Wonderful way to world hop. It's almost exposition in its own right. It lets you know the place, you know, the, where we are. It's amazing how iconic the indie traveling has become. Though it always makes me laugh. If you look at the original versions of this film, you can see countries' names that have changed throughout the 40 years. And if you watch a current updated version, they change the name of some countries. Do they really? Yeah. Oh, so this got special editions, too. Oh, hell yeah. And if you watch on the Disney Plus, this, uh, yeah, this movie has been altered ever since. Well, Spielberg, so has been, I appreciate... Spielberg has been adamant that he does not want this altered in any way. He, they altered the title, but he has said that to him, he feels like this is his most perfect movie and he doesn't want it altered. You're saying they have? Just this? They have altered... J- just the only thing that I noticed was that, that they changed some of the names to be current because some of them have, have changed over the years once you get into the Middle East. Uh, yeah. Okay. And I appreciate Spiel- Spielberg has come out and... I think he did it on a press tour for Raiders and re-release in theaters. He apologized for E.T., yeah. and he says that he will never, ever allow, and he's going to work against changing films, period. Mm-hmm. So amazing that somebody who spearheaded it enough that he got lampooned on South Park for it now is the champion for never changing films. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're going to talk about South Park and Indiana Jones in a couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. This is also where we meet Tote for the first time as he's seen reading Life magazine as he looks at Indy. We then cut to a house in the mountains as a woman we will come to know as Marion is having a bit of a drinking contest. Now, as you guys mentioned, Marion was originally written as being 15 years old. <laughs> Thank God they changed that. Some people that were considered, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mary Steenburgen, Dee Wallace, which was a name that stuck out to me, mm-hmm. Deborah Winger, and Adam's Deborah Winger. number one crush, Jane Seymour. And 
would-be Catwoman <laughs> Sean Young was used for screen yep. tests with Selleck, as Adam pointed out earlier. But Spielberg had seen Animal House and really liked Karen Allen in it, so they went with her. I think she's superb here. I really do enjoy her character. She does kind of get lumped in with the damsel in distress, but I don't think her attitude allows that to happen. I really enjoy her in this movie. I'll go because I've already made my part a little uh, <laughs> a little clear. I love the character of Marion Ravenwood. Huge. She's not Princess Leia, but you could definitely see the archetype there a little bit as a strong woman because you didn't get that a lot at this time. In addition to just being a big fan of the character, Karen Allen, sorry, that's an early crush. Huge. <laughs> to this day, 40 years later, don't care, still crushing on her. Scrooged, Starman, you Ghost in the Machine? Um, you see the Ghost in the Machine? Ghost in the Machine. <laughs> um, and then just <laughs> wait a couple weeks until we discuss her again. Oh, yeah. But I think the character of Marion Ravenwood, but I also think just Abner Ravenwood, like there's a lot of story there. And I'm glad they aged her up a little bit. Still a little creepy that you got a professor and a student, but that's kind of real life even today. They don't say that she was a student. What they say was she was his professor's daughter. So she was a child. She yeah. was in love. Yeah. So she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, she was younger and yeah, not necessarily his student but if he was you know working with abner and that yeah i do think and i could see that he's got a mentor and his mentor's daughter who is a couple years younger looking up to it's basically what carrie fisher and harrison ford you know in real life were on the set of star wars when you think about Mm -hmm. it but i also like the introduction of this character we don't have major exposition we have a woman drinking the guys under a table and that scene comes back later on with belloc Again, it's Chekhov's drinking contest. I'll, I'll put it down. I love Marion Ravenwood. I love Karen Allen. This is the kind of wraparound storytelling that kind of gets lambasted a little bit. I mean, if we ever talk about Back to the Future, I think it's kind of overdone there. Here, I think it's oh, done God. perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I think the screenwriting here is magnificent, and I think they do it in such an organic way. You don't even think about it until later. You're like, oh, yeah, she was drinking earlier. And by the way, is this Ned Beatty she's having a drinking contest against? I, I guess not. <laughs> I love the look of this. Movie. Yeah, me too. I think she's great because every time she starts to lean too far into the damsel in distress, which is absolutely part of the serials that they're pulling from, that's kind of an inescapable component, there's a moment where she can handle herself. And since it's on my mind, we talked about pirates, there's a scene later on that is directly in the first Pirates movie. Think about this. Both Marion and Elizabeth Swan are asked by their captor to wear a particular You're dress. You're absolutely right. Mm. Yep. They go to dinner, and they conceal a, a kitchen knife to try to stab them if things go south. God, oh, I wish God. we had done this You're series right. first. You're absolutely right. <laughs> She's a standout. I think if you're comparing her to other Bond girls around this time, uh, she'd definitely be one of the best. It's like her and Holly Goodhead for this 70s, 80s period. Mm-hmm. And, and again, they, they don't push it too far in either way. So, yeah, for this movie, it's fantastic. I have no idea how she knows these people. All I know is that she looks like a party. <laughs> <laughs> she wins the drinking contest and then sends everyone out the door. Later, Gators. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Yeah, she should have called a bunch of losers. <laughs> <laughs> Indy then shows up, and what a job Spielberg does with this meeting. And I talked earlier, there's a scene in this movie where I think it's the best lighting Spielberg's ever done. I think this is it. And Adam, you're right, we got to give Douglas Slocum a lot of credit on this too. I love how this is framed. The lighting really reminded me, and Matt, I think you'll agree with me on this, of the days of Universal Movie Monsters. 
The way Indy comes in and is that shadow behind Marion is just perfectly lit. This may be top five best lit scenes in the history of film. So many different influences going on here. And this is all with natural light. And again, we're getting more exposition going on. And it says a lot, too. We know Indy emotionally hurt her in some way, and she is still having trouble handling it. So she's lashing out. This might work better if we had seen him return the advances of the student earlier. But like I said, it's good that they took that out. I wouldn't have liked to have seen that. But when she says that she was a child, that's what I think of. Boys, how do we feel about this introduction to the relationship between Marion and Indy? I think it's actually important that they remove that subplot of him falling for a student because it makes her feel a little bit more unique that there was something genuine and he wasn't just flirting around. So I actually like that they took off the womanizer elements to give her a little bit more of a stronger dynamic where it's actually viable that she was genuinely hurt by him leaving. And they don't over-explain this throughout the entire movie. And all they leave it at is, my dad's dead. That's all you need to know. If he loves you like a son. Like, everything is kept on strictly the need to know that this is not a Christopher Nolan movie where they spend another 20 minutes talking about it. They just move the fuck on. Because this movie is also one of the best examples I would show people of pacing and editing. Because there is not a, a single scene in this movie that you watch that is not either unimportant to the grand scheme, does not tell you something about characters, or does not advance the plot. Everything is essential. If you remove any scene from this movie, you will notice a disconnect because every scene is a chain. And if you remove a link, it does not work anywhere as near as it's like. It is expertly told, expertly conveyed, and it's only two hours. This movie's not even two hours long. Spielberg's originally cut was three hours, and they did have to cut it to under two hours, which is weird to think about now because now two and a half hours is the norm. This is one of the most technically proficient movies that has ever been made. I want a poster of that silhouette of Indy walking into the barn. Yeah. It is such an iconic shot, and it's amazingly beautifully done. I mean, that shot alone right there is this movie as much as anything else for me. It's, god dang. It's funny, because Lucas would rip this off for a poster for episode one, decades later, of Annie in the desert, and his shadow cast on the hut is... Darth Vader. Like it's a, it's a similar shot. This thing is phenomenal. I love this bar. I love the way it's shot. I love the light. It looks like some bar up in the Andes and everything that plays on here. It's dirty. It's lived in. It feels realistic. And it's amazing just how the shadow play at work at this time frame, being that this shot in 80 is just so far ahead of its game. It would not look as good now. And it's amazing that it looks that good then. It still, still holds up. After this argument, and Marion pretty much just kicks Indy out, we're seeing Marion pull out the headpiece that Indy mentioned. And this is convenient, yet it tells us that she does indeed have it. And I think it serves that purpose pretty well. This is when good old Tote shows up. Now, Tote was originally conceived as a Bond villain type, a Nazi soldier who had a mechanical arm. No. That doubled as a machine gun and a radio antenna built into his head. Yes, that was the original conceit. But guess what? Lucas even thought that that was too far-fetched. <laughs> now, I'm going to save that one of the sequels. <laughs> How pissed off would you be if that showed up in Dial of Destiny? <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Now, they originally... I'm not going to put anything beyond Disney uh, Lucasfilm, so we'll see. (laughs) Now, Matt, tell me if you've heard this story. They originally offered this part to Klaus Kinski, 
No. Yes. A German actor known for spaghetti westerns at the time. Being certifiably insane. That was the other thing he was known yeah. for. He turned it down to be in a film called Venom, which was a horror film that also starred Oliver Reed and paid him considerably more and was also released in 1981. That was Spielberg's original choice, original choice. But he ended up going with Ronald Lacey, who had retired from acting, was actually acting as a Hollywood agent at the time. I love the character of Tote. What about you guys? He scared the heck out of me as a kid, and he still sends shivers down my spine today. It's everything he does is with menace, and he feels like just some of the evil Nazi troops that we would have. Everything about him is deliberate, evil, creepy. Even that 10 seconds in, once Marion rebuffs him nicely, she doesn't tell him to F off. She's just like, oh, don't have it. You could tell that he's like, okay, well, I'm going to do this my way, and pulls out the poker like immediately. But he doesn't, he never goes above a level, and the malevolence that he has by being just calm is so creepy. His look is a part of that just top-tier villain. Oh, yeah, this is the most memorable, I think, character for me. And this is easily a role that could have been overplayed, mm. overly theatrical. His German accent could have been, I don't know, I think, like, Captain America 1990 is what I think of, as far as how bad this, this could have gone. Mm. But he underplays it, and he never has to raise his voice, which I think makes him even scarier, which is sort of the point Adam alluded to earlier. But goddamn... Now that I know that Klaus Kinski was almost in this movie, I feel like I have to knock it because of that. Because now I want Werner Herzog in Indiana Jones. <laughs> and look, it, it's not too late. He's still alive. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Werner Herzog. Klaus Kinski's yeah. been dead for a long time. Because he, he opened his own Ark of the Covenant. It was called Cocaine. Yep. And could not put the lid back on. <laughs> Tote says that he wants the same thing that Marion's friend Dr. Jones wanted. I love the evolution of this scene because Marion is not backing down and she resists as she blows smoke in Tote's face and puts up a front. But you could tell that she's she's starting to relent because she eventually starts breaking down. Her voice shakes as she offers Tote and his men drink. And then, as you mentioned, Adam, he threatens her with the fire stick. And this is another great big bit of suspense as Spielberg makes it a point to show a close-up of the poker as he gets closer to her face and Tote just softly saying, yes. I know you will. This is when Marion is at her most vulnerable. But Indy shows up, and boy, do I love it. He takes a whip to the fire stick, and this gunfight is spectacular. Burt puts some great sound effects here, with punches being punctuated, with sounds of leather jackets being hit by baseball bats. And I love just how loud Indy's gun is. Burt actually used the sound of a 30-30 Winchester rifle for this gun. Every single time Indy fires it, you know it's his gun. This fight alone should have garnered this movie an R rating, too, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just a fantastic fight. I, I love the way this is choreographed. I love the alcohol on the bar as Indy's face is on it and the fire goes past. Just great fun here. Alcohol, my favorite detail is when he goes whiskey and she gives yeah. him a bottle. <laughs> uh, and again, he's not super bad. He's in a fight, in a true bar fight, and he's outnumbered. And it never feels like it's too in his favor. Like, he can get punched, he can get thrown across the bar, but... The reason why he can survive is because, as I alluded to with the, the bottle joke, he's always aware of his surroundings, which is established in the opening when he says, oh, it's never this easy. Yeah, this is a this is a great set piece. Amazing scene. The sound effects are so of its time, you know, and they feel like those reels that this wanted to be because they're over the top. But it, it as ridiculous as they are, they still fit. It's as you said, it's choreographed really well, and I still can't help but laugh every time and say it right along, where he's just like, whiskey? 
You know, it's, I, I'm saying the same thing. But even with, you know, the barrel gets shot, what does Marion do? Puts her mouth underneath and takes a drink like a freaking <laughs> IT machine. It's a 11 little character beats. It's shot really well. It's choreographed really well. It's a fun little action scene. And, you know, we had a lot leading up to this. And suddenly we're just getting knuckle-dragged-out action, and it works so well. Indy is eventually caught. He fights his way out, as you guys said, with some whiskey. But he's choked down before shooting his way out of it. Tote, meanwhile, he reaches down for the medallion, and it burns his hand as he runs for more snow. More on this later. Which, again, is also something that you are not cognizant of. Yeah. Because they don't... Mm -hmm. Whenever someone opens the door of that bar... The exterior shots are never showing, you know, the snow-covered house. Mm -hmm. So for all you know, this could be taking place in the desert where he has to go. So I love that they they cut and he runs outside in the snow because he knows it's there. But you are with him. They don't really tease you with that. It's a nice change of pace. Yeah, I agree with that. And he fights his way out as Marion proves to be trustworthy by shooting a man aiming for him. So now she's officially his goddamn partner, as she puts it. We then meet Salah. Oh, Salah. John Rice Davies is another great part of this franchise. We talked about him when we talked about Bond. They originally wanted another guy we reviewed on this podcast. Literally little guy by the name of Danny DeVito. But conflicts with Taxi prevented that from happening. But Spielberg had seen Shogun and realized that Davies is perfect for this role. I really like this character, too. He's fantastic. He also gives a lot of exposition, but does it in a way that's believable. He brings that James Bond world-hopping aspect into play by being a part of this world. You know, he knows it. He knows some of the rules. And even some of the things that happen are very specific to this area and this culture. Things like gathering the kids around to save somebody because of how kids are precious. You wouldn't know that, but it's it's little things like that. John Reese davis is fantastic. He's great. One of my favorite side characters in the indie films universe. I love that he does the narration for... Um, Indiana Jones, The Forbidden Journey. That's it. That's the right. Yeah. Disneyland. Hello, my friends. Man, Saul is great. It's simple as that. Saul is fantastic. He's in the new one, right? Yeah. Yes. I thought I saw him when I saw that trailer. He's got Star Trek Center, but he's only in the odd number. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Matt, how do you feel about this character, sir? He's needed levity without going too far. Like, he is not mm-hmm. here just for comic relief. He's actually useful. He's got key connections that they need to utilize. And he also brings Jones up to speed that Belloc is working with the Nazis. So I like that he's more in the know than Jones mm-hmm. is. So if he wasn't here, it'd be a lot harder for Jones to do anything because he's entirely on his own. And I think... One of the reasons why I don't really go back to Temple of Doom is because he's not there. Yeah, he's definitely needed. We'll get to that next week. Marion makes friends with a monkey, which in real life Karen Allen actually hated, as Indy talks about his plans with the Ark, and Sala says that Belosh was the only smart one around him. (laughs) I love that mispronouncing of Belloc's name. And Sala brings up the same thing that Marcus does earlier, as he believes disturbing the Ark would not be a good idea. It would be, quote-unquote, disturbing the dead, which I thought was a really nice scene that outlines, again, more of what we're going to see later. Yeah, it's more foreshadowing mm-hmm. of the, you know, because in the the exposition scene with the, with the U.S. intelligence, they talk about the religious consequences, but it's what you would expect reading the Torah, you know, it's like hellfire and damnation, things like that. Here they're saying, like, this shit could actually happen. So I, I like that every act... All three acts of this movie tease you with what can happen if this act is actually achieved. Mm. Yeah, you know, what I was thinking, because I'm, you know, really paying attention this time for a lot of things. And, you know, Saul was in a spot where exposition explaining everything else, one, 
I can't believe how beautiful this area looks in Cairo. Big, big fan. Like, it's, it's gorgeous. But everybody here, including some of Salah's people, are working for the Nazis with what's going on. Because they have to. They're forced to. They talk about, it's like the pharaohs coming back because everybody's suddenly a slave under these masters. There's little things going on here that, that he gives in line of dialogue that really count and really matter. There's just one more of those scenes where I'm like, as it's playing out, I'm just captivated more and more every time. The monkey runs off as Indy takes Marion away. They have some nice conversations, as Indy says. It didn't take much to alienate Marion's dad. It just took her. <laughs> hmm. Just proves just how big. How big of an asshole Indy can be, but so charming. But he doesn't have too hard a hold on her as the bad guys have found them out, and Indy is once again on a chase. This is 30s swashbuckling at its best. There is great swordplay here, as some hit, some don't, and Marion even gets a hit in with a frying pan. And, of course, <laughs> we've all heard the story of how Ford was nursing a fever and dysentery when he got to the fight with this huge guy with the sword and the big fight was planned for it but Ford said that he wasn't up to it and just suggested shooting the guy which Spielberg agreed with and that's how it comes off and that's how it's shot just fantastic it just it punctuates this character perfectly we know what this fight's about we didn't need another big fight with this whip and a sword Indy does it all with a gunshot perfectly done if he can do it with a gun he'll do it I know that stuntman was very pissed but I think if that scene was a drag out fight it would have detracted when he fights Jesse Ventura later on in the movie <laughs> <laughs> I love the scene. I like the music. I mean, as much as it feels like a Buster Keaton type of just silliness of running around, and it, man, it's fun. Marion looks fantastic. It's it's great. I was watching this. I'm like, honey, I got a cosplay Disney bounding idea because her red parachute pants and top, like it feels great for the for the time and the era. There's something really fun about them just walk, running through these streets and the villainous, and it's another departure. After we, it's not long since we got an action scene, but it's a different kind of action. There's a fun to this that isn't necessarily in the others. It's, it's a little more silly, a little more campy, but it's not taken unseriously. You actually feel some of the stakes here. The scene with the swordsman, it's been said about it forever. It still works. I think it's still a great way to do it. That legend grows is there for a reason, but yeah, it's, it's a really good time. Not everyone on this set got sick. Only person who didn't was Spielberg himself, who did not eat the Tunisian food that was served. He ate what he brought, can after can of SpaghettiOs. Thank you, Chef Boyardee. Exactly. <laughs> Indy starts knocking off a bunch of the baskets, thinking that Marion is in one. As she is taken to a truck and Indy is shot at, so he can't really follow it, they drive off as Indy shoots the driver, the truck falls down, and then blows up. I I don't think we should be thinking that she's dead. I think we are just supposed to react how Indy reacts to this. No, you're correct. We're seeing it through his perspective, which is important. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if it's ever so... I mean, it, I don't know if anybody ever actually was supposed to believe that she died. I don't think it takes it that seriously. It takes a beat. The music changes. You know, it goes from the Han and Leia love theme that we've gotten throughout this for Indy and Marion, because that's what it is, yeah, <laughs> to a little more mournful Empire Strikes Back theme mm -hmm. <laughs> for this moment. But it doesn't stick around long enough, even though he's wallowing in it. it it's not a, oh my God, she's dead moment. It's Indy thinks she's dead moment. And Indy's having a drink here. I think this is supposed to play off of what he was supposed to be, which was an alcoholic from earlier. Mm -hmm. Jones is then visited by Belloc. And these two have some great interactions here. As Belloc says, it's not a very private place for a murder. And Belloc tells him to sit down before he falls down. And Indy suggests that if he wants to find another adversary similar to him, he should try the local sewer. 
Just some great stuff here. But again, you're just feeling Indy's pain here. Yeah, and if you pay attention, again, seen it so many times, but watching it with just tighter lenses, even just when he's just like, you want to see, let's go see him together. Yeah. Indy's willing to kill him and then be gunned down in this place. And and I think it's kind of powerful that way. And to keep seeing Dunlop show mm-hmm. up right behind Indy every step of the way, fantastic. This is his uh, let's get messy. Yeah. <laughs> We're also getting, until I took such arduous notes for this movie, I didn't realize just how much buildup we're getting here because we get more buildup to the arc as Belloc's, he's like, do you know what the arc means in Indy? This is just great, great stuff that we're, we're supposed to feel the power of this thing that we're going to be seeing here in a few minutes. Indy is then supposedly saved by children, and then he meets right back up with Sala, who takes him to the guy who can help them figure out the markings on the headpiece, which somehow Belloc has a duplicate of. More on this later. We see the monkey get poisoned, and Salah save Indy for the first of seemingly a hundred times by preventing him from eating one of these things that the monkey ate. Yeah, that dates. Yeah. You know those. You've had a lot of those, Gary. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jen made them last night. Join the club. We got jackets. <laughs> <laughs> they find out the height that the staff needs to be in order for the medallion to work, as well as finding out that Belloc is digging in the wrong place. It seems silly that... All this would be going on, and they were just digging right here and sitting right there. But I do think it's very accurate to archaeology, where we are still today in the 21st century finding hidden doors in pyramids that we've been excavating for 100 years, and we're still finding stuff inside them. So I know a lot of people that have an issue with, hey, they're digging right there. All you did was literally go, you know, 100 yards this way, and you find it. But for such a massive scale, this is archaeologically accurate, at least in my mindset, to everybody being on site, digging, and not being able to find what they need. Mm. And the desert compounds it because all it takes is one sandstorm for everything to go to shit. Covered up. Yep. We then cut to the scene of Indy finding out where the Well of Souls is, and my God, again, such a great job by Williams. The direction. Everything. This is up there as a top ten scene of all time for me. The way he puts this staff down and the sun comes down and that theme comes up. I'm getting chills up my back just talking about this, boys. This is about the time Jenna was watching this with me. She fell asleep about an hour or so in. I put my notes down and I just looked at this and I just could not stop just feeling the chills when that sun hit and then we see exactly where the Will of Souls is. Just greatly done, greatly built up scene. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful, amazing design. The production, the music, the swell, the shot, everything in this map room is glorious. So after this is over, he breaks the staff and then he prepares to go up, but he gets a Nazi flag brought down. (laughs) Now this is weird. You know, there was a whole thing. And like I said, this movie was three hours and there was a whole set of scenes where Salah lost the rope that he was supposed to bring Indy up with. So he had to go find something else to bring Indy up with, and he found a set of bed sheets and this Nazi flag, which is why it comes down. I always thought this was because the Nazis put it down. No, Salah put this down for him. Yep, I thought the same thing. To me, I remember this as being like the Nazis and that. And I'm like, yeah, no, there's something else. This shows some clipping and cutting and stuff like that. It really doesn't fit, but it, you go past mm-hmm. it. It also moves quick enough to where it's not dwelled upon. Yep. So the moment your brain realizes, wait, that doesn't track, they move on to the next thing. Good point, yeah. Indy works his way through the Nazis before finding Marion, 
and he is going to cut her loose before he decides he doesn't want his cover blown and the place scoured all over for them, so he leaves her be. This is something that Karen Allen, at the time, wasn't really for. By this point, she found herself to be the quote-unquote damsel in distress, and instead of doing it in the name of her father, at this point, she was doing it just for the love of Indy, and she doesn't feel that Indy would have done this. I kind of see it from Indy's point of view, but that's only because I love this character. Would you like to see Marion cut loose here? No, because his logic is entirely sound. It's sound. It's not the type of thing we would see, you know, in a traditional movie with a traditional hero. So I still think it's kind of awkward, you know, because he is still choosing the arc. He's not just getting out of Dodge. So it's, it's a little awkward, and I see the point, you know, that she would have. I... This is one of the only scenes that I don't think meshes well, right? I don't think it's a great intro or a great conclusion to the scene, you know, of him finding her. I think it's a little anticlimactic across the board. But I like that it gives her something here to do with it. Mm-hmm. Indy finds the Well of Souls through a telescope, and then they start digging. Meanwhile, Belloc, he tells his henchmen that Marion knows nothing. As Tote, he goes to the camera and shows us exactly how they got the medallion and uttering Hail Hitler in the process, which is something I used to rewind that as a kid. I never knew what he said until I finally had the subtitles on when I bought the DVD set. And boom, yeah, it's Hail Hitler. Another nice reveal, but not really, not really too in our face. Yeah, and it's a good thing he was the one who touched it because Trump's small ass hands would have been able to <laughs> Yeah, it's nicely done, and shoot, I completely forgot because it happened earlier that the monkey also does a high yes, Hitler salute. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's, such mm-hmm. a, it's such a weird thing to laugh at, and I feel horrible laughing at it every time, but I still do. <laughs> it's a good reveal here, but even when he pulls what looks like some weird Nazi nunchucks out of his oh, bag. Oh, we're getting to that scene. Hold off. Hold off. We're getting there. Yeah. yeah. But he, he's the biggest dumbass in this movie because he's walking around the desert in a black <laughs> suit with a leather jacket on top yes. of Yes. This like, is Darth Vader on Tatooine. <laughs> I'm like, how are you not dead due to heat yeah. stroke? Yeah, you can tell later when he's walking. Like, he takes his head off. He's like, God damn, it's hot. He's wiping his head. <laughs> Another great shot of Indy and the workers digging in the, de- in the sunset as we cut to thunder and they find the well. They crowbar the well loose as Salah sees a statue that scares him. <laughs> this was a great scene where he just kind of goes, ah, and he looks at it and he goes, sorry, Indy. Fun, silly moment. It, mm-hmm. just, it breaks the tension. Absolutely, yeah. And I want to say they do something similar in the first Brendan Fraser mummy. They find an Anubis statue and someone makes a joke. Yeah. When they're finding it, and they're digging. And then when they finally have, you know, the stone top that they're about to undo. And the poltergeist feel of those clouds. Oh, yeah coming in, and the wind. We haven't talked about it a lot, but every time the arc is mentioned, religion is mentioned, the wind blows through, you know, and you have candles getting blown, mm-hmm. you have wind chimes every time it gets discussed, and it happens here the same way. But even the beautiful shot of them getting the crowbars underneath and scraping that tie, it's, oh, man. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's cloudy poltergeist with a chance of Ghostbusters with those clouds. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where my brain goes. Same special effects artist, by the way, worked on all three. So I think you guys are onto something there. He then asks Indy if the floor moves, and Indy sees that the floor's not moving at all, but it's snakes. Beautifully paying off what we found out in the beginning. And Davies is great here because he goes, Ass, very dangerous. And he goes, You go first. <laughs> and, Indy, and the look that Ford gives him is so great. Ugh. Yeah, and that's a line Spielberg talked about how young Frankenstein, mm-hmm. there's that exact line where he's like, Sir, it could be dangerous. <laughs> You go first. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully delivered by Davies, too. Meanwhile, Belloc, he unties Marion, telling her that the desert is three weeks in every direction. 
and then he feeds her dinner. I'm not sure if he's fascinated by her or if this is all an act. This is one scene where I know they ad-libbed this. Karen Allen and and Paul Freeman really ad-libbed exactly how this was going to play out because it wasn't really mentioned in the script how they were going to pay this off. They're the ones who came up with the knife under the napkin and all that, but I don't get what he is trying to accomplish by visiting her like this. Yeah, it's not wonderfully done, and it could just be that he's a horny Frenchman here in the desert. I don't blame him. He's watching her in the mirror while while she's oh, undressing God, after he gives her the dress. He's watching her in the mirror undressing. I know, but you're like, I don't blame I him. Say, I, I didn't say I paused it. <laughs> I, oh, he just switched from third person to third person. It pays back her drinking earlier because she thinks she's going to drink him under the table. She hides the knife that she's going to stab him with, you know. So it gives a little – it's the Princess Leia is going to escape into the garbage chute herself. It's that type of thing. She's not her – even when Indy decides that he's going to leave her there, she's going to work to free herself. She's not going to wait to be rescued. So on surface, on paper, it's a good idea. It's just not done as great. And I think because everything else in this movie is so spot perfect, it stands out as a eh. Okay, kind of scene. So I'm going to infer a bit and say that he's getting her drunk so he can ask her where Indiana Jones is without any inhibitions. But I think I'm reading too much into it. That's the only real story reason why I think, outside the fact that he's just the first woman he's seen in God knows how long. (laughs) So Marion says that she has no loyalty to Jones as she comes out in a dress that he laid out for her. Meanwhile, Indy is lowered down into a classic shot of Indy between glass and a cobra. (laughs) (laughs) which is not an ass that's a cobra that's a flat cobra yeah it should be said that they put 7,000 snakes in this set 7,000 and 10,000 hoses (laughs) well they inferred a little (laughs) bit but they had to do that for some scenes here but yeah, and also legless lizards, too, were down there as well. But you don't think about that. You know, you're thinking it's just full of snakes, and that's all you really need to know. He fools around and sprays gas before lighting the floor on fire. We then cut back to Marion and Belloc, once again paying off again Adam, like you said before, what we saw before. As Marion starts pouring more drinks, and we're thinking that she's getting Belloc wasted as he coughs after every shot. We go back to the Well of Souls, right next to a carving of R2 and 3PO, by the way. Did you guys catch that? Only because I know it's yeah. there, so now I know yeah. If you don't it. know it's there, yeah. you're not going to catch it. Wait till next week. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Obi-Wan. And they lift the lid off before throwing it. We then see Belloc playing off how drunk he is, when in reality he's just playing her a fool. She grabs a knife and then heads out before running into Tote. And then, Adam, you talked about it, but we're going to talk about it now. A scene I absolutely love. As we're seeing a massive buildup for what we think is a weapon of some sort, maybe nunchucks. Nope, it's a coat hanger. And he sits down to say, what should we talk about? Fan-fucking-tastic. It's great, because it turns into a joke, but you're never laughing, because it's still eerie the way he does it. Yeah, absolutely. And the way Williams is playing the music, too, like, again, it's another sting from Star Wars, I think. You know, the way this is being built. But no, it's just a coat hanger. (laughs) <laughs> well, you're laughing because the tension is different. Correct. Yeah. 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 Because we've seen this guy just be a total dick to her the entire time. But nope, he just wants his coat hang, hung up. So, see, he's not running around in all black long stuff, Matt. He just wants his... He, he got rid of the coat. Yeah, he waited until the fucking sun <laughs> And he's inside. <laughs> We cut back to the well as they grab the ark and carry it to the box before closing it. And this is the first scene, again, as I mentioned, I remember seeing while my dad had it on cable one night. This scene of this ark being lifted up. 
glorious. Just glorious. Again, just well lit. Everything about it is just superb. The suspense about it. I just love the way it's the scene shot. shot. It's the only one that I can think of where it's shot a little more ethereal. It's actually shot up looking down a little bit, almost like a heavenly look mm-hmm. down as the, at the arc. Like it's not horizontal. It's not the down up shot. It's the only one I can think of that's kind of shot down a little bit, other than maybe the very, very end. And it's amazing how you got the lighting, you got everything else. And this gold seems to resonate as they mm. lift it out. And it just, it feels powerful while it's going on. It, it's amazing how, at a time where most people can't or even realize really what the Ark is supposed to represent, you know, and the Ten Commandments and all, most people don't know their biblical history that well, but fuck, it's powerful. Mm. We cut back to Tote, telling Belloc that he's getting too close to Marion. We go back to the well as Salah gets out before Belloc shows up and once again screws everything up. He gets his hands on something that was once again briefly Indies. Another really nice payoff. Marion is thrown down. It looks like much to Belloc's chagrin because he's like, no, as she gets thrown. And they fight off snakes before the lid is closed. And it's funny here because one of the stunt people, Karen Allen, wasn't, she didn't mind the snakes. Unlike the character, Harrison Ford's not too scared of snakes. There's great footage of Spielberg talking to the snake saying, you're ruining my shot. I recommend people go seek that out. It's really fun. So nobody was really too afraid of him, but there was a scene here where Karen Allen just didn't want to do it. So one of the stuntmen actually shaved his legs, put this white dress on, and played played Marion's legs as the snakes were going around him. This Well of Soul scene, it was filmed on the same soundstage as the Shining's Overlook Hotel. In fact, Vivian Kubrick, she visited the set and complained to the RSPCA about the mistreatment of animals, specifically the snakes on the set. I get the feeling that the Kubricks just love to fuck with Spielberg, don't you, Matt? <laughs> I think they just love to fuck with everybody. Yeah. I, I think they got her there because they said Stephen King was on set. <laughs> like, she, she just showed up. <laughs> Indy asks about the dress, and she says that she was just trying to escape as she waves her torch toward his whip, which I thought was great. Like, she thought his whip was a snake, so she puts the torch towards it. Oh, no, it's his whip. <laughs> Birds of <laughs> Indy then gets an idea of how to get out. As he climbs the statue to head right through the wall, he climbs up, and Spielberg once again builds some great suspense as Marion Torch goes out, and Indy pushes the statue through a wall. And then we get a nice little Night of the Living Dead reference as Marion gets up and runs into some corpses. And I love the screaming sound effects as she's surrounded and Indy just casually pulls her to safety. <laughs> like He's just like, Marion, you got to come here. Like not realizing that she's just engulfed in these corpses. Yeah, this is a creepy as hell you forgot about. Really? Yeah, it's, it's creepy. It's off-putting. Again, more dilapidated corpses. Yeah. He would yeah. play with this imagery a lot in the next year with Poltergeist. I swear this scene has been cut from TV versions because I think I've seen it where this part of her going through the skeletons is missing but that snake escaping from the mouth oh yeah just mm. gave me nightmares as a kid and it's uh, still effective mm-hmm. they go right to an airfield where the ark is taking off from they get out and indy realizes that they are trying to fly the ark out of this airfield we're seeing indy have his way with some nazis before this big henchman who Spielberg and Lucas use a lot in this series. They use him earlier. You know, he was punched out in a bar in the bar earlier at Marion's bar. And here he is again. And we're going to be seeing this guy for the next few movies because he shows up in the, in at least the next two. This Pat Roach. He's a British wrestler. Uh, he walks out of his hut and right towards Indy. I completely forgot that Tom Hardy's bronze. <laughs> That's exactly what this guy looks like. This is a fun scene. When the guy sees him, he's just like, oh, looks like it's time for a bit of fun. 
Like, he's just down and he's enjoying this fight. It's, it's oh, this is a fun mm-hmm. time. Another fantastic fight here. I love the sound effects of the punches and the look on Indy's face as he's like, okay, hold on, as he's getting up. But you know Indy's tired, and he's just kind of holding his hand out like, all right, let's go. (laughs) Every time that he hits the guy four or five times, finally staggers, the guy gets in one punch, and Indy's on his ass. (laughs) He's so outmatched, and Marion's still trying to work with them to get them escape before she gets trapped. But I can't believe the way this fight ends works in a PG film because oh it's great because it's consistent with the rest of the movie that he's not you know he's not super yeah he can take a beating as much as he can give one mm-hmm. Indy is punched once and falls he bites the guy's arm and he can't even turn towards the plane as a pilot will shoot him if he does. And this pilot, by the way, was played by Frank Marshall, producer on this film. And this is actually where he met Kathleen Kennedy, was on this shoot. She was a production assistant on this film, if you could believe it. (laughs) Now she's the Mm -hmm. head of Lucasfilm. Marion takes out the pilot and then gets stuck in the cockpit as the fight ensues. And I do like how Marion likes shooting Nazis like Chewie likes shooting stormtroopers in this movie, (laughs) where she sees a whole bunch of them, she just shoots all of them. Mows them down, yeah. Meanwhile, Indy loses his gun, and I love how the explosion is the only thing Belloc needs to see before realizing that it's Indy. <laughs> Jones? He knows. Uh-huh. He trapped him in the well. It doesn't matter. He knows Jones yep. got out. Gas covers the ground as they fight more on the plane. Just so much going on here. This is also where Harrison Ford, he tore ligaments in his knee as he fell down, and this tire ran over his leg. It stopped, fortunately, but Spielberg jokingly said, well, it's fortunate that it, it wasn't worse because the tire was in the sun the entire time, so it lessened the blow. <laughs> Man, just the shit that Ford went through in this movie. It's, it's amazing that he's come back for a fifth time. But you know what? He tore his ligaments, but Ford, being the dude he was, and this is a man's man for you right here, they iced it up, wrapped it, and he continued with the shoot. I tore my ligaments in fucking high school, and I was out for like a month. <laughs> he tears them, and he puts ice on it and goes right back out. Indy makes a comeback and punches the guy a few times before ducking, and we get evidence number 85 as to why this movie should have gotten an R rating as the dude is caught in the propeller. Holy shit. No case. No case. What'd you say, Matt? No case. No case. Because the Incredibles would do this and there's no blood. <laughs> Hell, I another day did this and there was no blood. Unbelievable. And and you just see it happen, too. It's not like we just see the blood spurt the plane. We see the dude's face get hit by that propeller. <laughs> Man. They escape, but Sala says now the Ark is being loaded onto a truck. So Planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> I have to ask. Is this too much, guys? We're seeing this thing go from thing to thing, and we're going to see a boat in a little bit. And there were some reviews back in 81 that said, you know what, it was just action for action's sake. There was no real logic behind it. Are you guys really enjoying the ride we're going on here? Absolutely, because it's so these set pieces are so well put together as far as how the fight choreography goes, how everything flows. There's always a a story beat like Indiana Jones. He can't get the cockpit open, so he just shoots Mm -hmm. it. Again, he's not perfect, but he's also having to work on a time crunch. And that criticism, you could say about any of the the best Bond movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just action for action's sake. No, you're just upset because there's too much action in your mind. Because I've seen, like, the, the a bad example, or what I think the difference between this, like the bad version of this, where... It's nothing but set pieces. Is Neil Marshall's movie Doomsday? Oh yeah, that movie tries to be a you know grindhouse balls to the wall mm-hmm. movie, but they go on for so long that 
they get just, it becomes white noise. Here, they're long enough to where they don't overstay their welcome. Like, there's nothing like, as much as I love Bond, there's that whole opening of the world is not enough on the boat, where it's like, oh my god, just someone yell cut and move on. Uh, there's nothing like that here. And that variety helps. It's all different. I think the planes, trains, and automobiles, despite saying that tongue-in-cheek, I think that's why it works, is there's there's variety. The one thing I'll say, this watch, for some reason, I was like, I don't remember the car chase as much in this one as I remember it in Last Crusade. For some I reason, have you I ever seen like this that, movie before? Yeah, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> only a few dozen okay. times. But, but, but suddenly, 30 seconds into it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this, 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 and this. But the car chase, this part, wasn't just didn't hold as much as, you know, the plane and the boat slash submarine here in a little bit. So I'd forgotten that we had this addition to the chase as well. But I think it is so well done. The way that the trucks are racing through, the action, the music, the score, everything. The fact that Indy gets shot. Mm-hmm. You know, in his shoulder, and the blood splatters across the mm-hmm. window. Is it a little action for action's sake? Yeah. Could you cut it? Yeah, you could if you wanted to trim it down. But this movie, as much as this podcast is going to be considerably longer than the movie itself, <laughs> the movie, when you look at the time, is fairly fleet. And, you know, this is adrenalizing before we have another bit of a down scene here in a minute. More great Williams themes here as Belloc and the troops head out, and Indy makes up a plan as he goes. <laughs> I love that. He's telling the Sala and Marion the plan that he has to get this arc, and Sala's like, then what? And Indy's all, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> so he gets on a horse and rides right above the truck before jumping onto it, and this was a scene that, again, very storyboarded. In fact, this was one of the things Lucas kind of envisioned as he was making up the character, was this scene. And Ralph McQuarrie did work on this, not as much as Star Wars. He brought, believe it or not, a Marvel comic book writer to work on a lot of the storyboards on this, a lot of the visualization of this. can't remember the guy's name, but this was much visualized before we actually see it on film more fantastic stunts here as this truck chase took five weeks to film and by the way this is the scene i mentioned earlier that michael bay helped storyboard was this scene one of his first jobs in hollywood i I believe some awesome moments here as indy laughs with a soldier before punching him out of the truck and then we get this unassuming henchman get on the truck and actually shoot indy in the shoulder as you mentioned matt adam and throws indy through a window and out of the truck and indy has to make his way back on funny bit here where he's pulling on the mercedes emblem and the mercedes emblem fails him i think that was a kind of a jab at mercedes because of the way they factored into the holocaust I do, too. Yeah. I absolutely think that's a little mm-hmm. shot because of Mercedes work, working with Germany in the Nazis. Yep. <laughs> Good matte painting of the car going over the cliff happens, and we get more awesome stunt work as we are seeing Indy make his way under the truck to the back of it to prevent from being rammed into the truck by Belloc. Just great stuff here. This is something that Indy actually did himself, or that Harrison Ford did himself. Busted up some ribs while doing this. <laughs> Because, of course, he did. Just great stuff. And he gets back in, throws the guy out before running him over, and then he pulls the truck into a brilliant hiding spot that tricks the Nazis. Oh, I love this. I love this truck chase. What about you guys? I was to say, like, what's my favorite part of the movie? I think my first guess would probably be this portion. And it's done so well that you realize, oh, the movie's not over yet. Mm -hmm. Like... Because you, you'd think in serials, you know, it ends with the big fight where all the villains get knocked off the cliff, he gets the arc and saves the day, but that's not quite what happens. And I think it'd be sort of a, I don't want to call it a flat conclusion, but I think they were smart to not make this the end. I agree. Yeah, I do too. It's 
it's fun, it's impactful, you know, like we talked about. And yeah, it would have been easy for him to drive off into the sunset and and be done with it after this point. The ending when suddenly, you know, they he drives a truck and is up and locked. It makes no logistical sense whatsoever because it would have to be yes. planned out and know he was going to yeah. get there. It is. It, there is no <laughs> logical reason. I don't care because yeah. it's fun. I like it, and it seems exactly like something I would see at that stunt spectacular mm. in Florida. It just Belloc finally realizing that Jones pulled one off on him. You know, he got yeah. away. We see Sala introduce Indy and Marion to the captain's Katanga before saying goodbye to them. Are we to assume that this Katanga guy is bad at this point? I kind of got that feeling. Even as a kid, I watched, when I was a kid, I watched this, I'm like, he, I think we're supposed to think he's bad. They're pirates. They, they are literally, sorry, they're literally pirates of the, you know, mm-hmm. pirates of the East Indian Trading Company. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, these are privateers. They are pirates. They just, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's, he's got a relationship with Sala. Apparently, you know, so Sala's got, would not be surprised that he's got black market dealings mm-hmm. and stuff like that. He's heard of Indiana Jones, and he's just like I expected him. But also, and this is kind of messed up, but it's movies of the of that time. You get an entirely African-American black crew here. Of course, they're not the bad guys. They're up to no good. Yeah. We then get to what is as close to a love scene as we're going to see. And like Empire... I think this feels very organic as Indy compliments Marion on the dress that Contanga supplies and then says another ad lib by Ford that will live in infamy. As he says a line that I still say to this day where when Marion says that he's not the man she used to know, he replies, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. <laughs> Great ad lib. Still use that line yep. myself as well. Yep. yep. God, it's the truth. <laughs> it's the littlest thing here that I can't believe that it had me double over in laughter was the mirror Yes. Scene. With her flipping a mirror, yeah. cracking him in the head, suddenly it pans to like an outside of the ship, and it's not a Wilhelm scream, but it's yeah. Laugh! <laughs> it's a silly just moment that ah, uh, yeah, levity, levity, just to break a scene mm-hmm. is great. And there was a Wilhelm scream about ten minutes before. Yeah, yeah, we yes, was there was. Chase, yeah, yeah, it's one of the yep. best place mm-hmm. ones. He then has her kiss everywhere that doesn't hurt, including his lips. Done this, use this. <laughs> And this, of course, puts Indy to sleep. <laughs> this is something Done I said. Yep, me too. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Marion gets upset. It's like, honey, have you seen what this man's been through? <laughs> Meanwhile, we have a weird cut to the ark being surrounded by mice and a hole being burnt through it. This was something that was added near the time this movie was about to come out, actually. It was a last-minute decision to include this scene. I guess it's to make the presence of the Ark continue to be known, make the danger that we're about to get into and be known, make the fact that this thing's about ready to be open to feel more dangerous. Yeah, it's just positive reinforcement. Yeah. The two parts that I got out of it. One was, yes, the you know the killing of the rats on the ship, where you kind of see them get contorted, twisted, and die. But if you notice the burn that happens on the box... Mm-hmm. It really just, the burn only covers the swath. Yeah, I noticed that. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the arc realizes the evil imagery that got put on that casing, and it burned it over. And it wasn't until like two or three watches ago that I realized that's what it had done. We see Indy load up as the engines have stopped, and then we see the boat is being boarded by Nazis, and Katanga tells Indy to hide. Go, my friend. Go, go, go. They bring up Marion, who swings toward Belloc, which brings a laugh to the crew. Katanga tells everyone that he has killed Jones, while Jones is actually hiding in a pipe. Katanga then has trouble finding him, but they spot him right on Da's boat. <laughs> as he's boarding <laughs> it. Uh, they borrow this boat for 
a day, and as long as they didn't make marks on it, they were allowed to use it. And India's scene on here, it doesn't make a bit of sense, but you know what? It's a triumphant moment. I don't care. I'm going with it. Yeah, uh, him swimming over. It, does it make sense? Nope, not whatsoever. Am I cheering along with the crew? Yep, sure. I'm having fun. It's Indy. Is it a hair too far? Sure it is. I don't care. It's action adventure that I'm laughing with. It doesn't bother me in the same way that when James Bond does stuff like this, I don't question yeah, it. Yeah, good point. You know, and I think this is one of those things, me being a Bond guy, the more outlandish stuff that he does in these movies, I have to abide by the same logic. Mm-hmm. More looking at where they're headed as Indy punches out more Nazis and he dones a disguise that doesn't fit. And Spielberg really brings home how dangerous Nazis are as he turns the sound up every single time they're around. Mm-hmm. We're then getting more build-up to the opening of the arc as Dietrich talks to Belloc about how uncomfortable he is doing this as he's talking about the Jewish ritual that goes along with it. This was something added by Kasdan. I think it's needed. I think the fact that that mm-hmm. wasn't brought up is something that was weighing on Kasdan's mind. He's like, these are Nazis, and this is a Jewish ritual. We need to bring that up. I love that detail mm-hmm. that this needs to get done. I love the detail that these Nazis are against it, you know, that they don't completely understand it. I think that's a great detail. What I never, ever realized until this watching was who performs the ritual. I never, I never knew that Belloc is the one that actually really? dons the robes and does it. I just... Wow. I just never saw that that was the same person. I don't know why, never, never did. But I also think it is a subtle, not so subtle, middle finger that everybody involved, that for these Nazis to get what they want and what they get for their comeuppance is that they're standing there watching this Jewish ceremony be performed. I think there's a lot of big to the Nazis, you know, that happen in this movie, and I think this is one more, if you look at it that way, that is brilliantly done. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to Adam's point, the turban covers a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way he shot, yeah. like the, the lighting, his face just looks, because it's contorted, look a little different. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We cut to the Nazis walking to where they're going to open the ark, but Indy has one more ploy. He aims a bazooka right at it. And Belloc is very smart here, though, as he dares Indy to blow it up, because he knows he won't. He knows that Indy wants to see this thing open just as much as they do, as does this fly that flies right into the shot. <laughs> and Ooh. what's great about it is Freeman nom, 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 nom. What's great about it is Freeman does not bat an eye. He just continues on with the scene. Another common legend is the fact that Freeman ended up eating this fly. That is completely false, as Spielberg edited around it. And when the fly flew in, Spielberg just made a couple of wise cuts, and the fly did fly away before they finally cut away from it. I, I, I love this scene for the dramatic f- effect of it, though, because Belloc is calling Indy's bluff. Indy, if you want to fire at this thing, go for it. But you want this done as much as I do. Yeah, exactly, because he's like, you want to see what it does. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be known as the guy who destroyed like a historic artifact. Because <laughs> this would have yeah. sort of been a story. Yeah, absolutely. And he calls him on it earlier that we're not so dissimilar, you and mm-hmm. I. You know, he knows what Indy will and won't do because it's not too different than what Belloc will do or not do. They're very similar. The opening of the arc commences. More great buildup by Spielberg here as Belloc gives a sermon, and they open the arc, and it's full of sand. And I love how Toad is just really loving this. He's laughing hysterically. Yeah, because he's the muscle. Like he doesn't yeah. he doesn't come off as pious or he's he's like the guy who the Nazis paid to do exactly. This. And he's laughing because he's like, really, we wasted all of our time. Yeah. On this. <laughs> but what a final scene we have here, boys. We're seeing souls who aren't very happy with being woken up. 
And to me, I watch this now, knowing what I know about the two guys behind this. This is just two kids in a candy store here. As you can tell, Spielberg and Lucas are just loving killing these Nazis. We see a laser take yep. most of them out. And then Belloc explodes. And this was the scene that got them the R. They had pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. This was the scene that got it for him. But all they did was cake more fire around him. And supposedly this hit it to the point where they were able to squeak by with a PG. But I don't know about you guys. I can still see the explosion of the body here. Yeah, you still see the viscera. Like, just because you add additional flame does not hide it. If you cut away and you just heard the sound, yeah. I could see that being the compromise. But how did, how is that okay? But someone's head caving in and shriveling up like a raisin. And, and another guy whose face just melts off. It is the precursor to Poltergeist. It's crazy. Yeah. It's the exact same scene, yeah. basically, except he doesn't rip his skin off one by one. God sorts that out. <laughs> I, but this is one of my favorite scenes ever because you will never, ever see Spielberg do nope. this now. This is back when he had balls the size of watermelon. Absolutely, man. And that's why I say it's two kids in a candy store because these are guys, you know, successful dudes in their 30s just having a blast making what they want to make. And Spielberg, being the Jewish guy here, he's like, yes, burn that Nazi up. And you're <laughs> absolutely right, Matt. If that fucking explosion didn't get the R, how the fuck did Tote Melting get by? And they do a close-up on him. And this is Chris Wallace, by the way. You see this head just completely melt, blood just melting, and it is so amazing. And thank God they made a candle of this. I have already told Jen this is what I want for my birthday. Yep. Is this a candle? Oh, my God. This is just brilliant, brilliant stuff. I love this final scene. And by the way, it's still punctuated by William's music. William's music is yeah. putting the exclamation mark on this final scene of these guys just completely losing it. And there's also 1981 was the year of heads exploding. Yeah, absolutely. This, is, this gets a PG, but Scanners gets an R. Well, Scanners had a lot more than just a head explosion, though. Well, it did. It's kind of the same, like, oh, so now we're prejudiced against head explosions? <laughs> <laughs> like, this one's okay, but that, that one's vilified, but this one gets a pass? Well, and then he ran into it again with Gremlins, and we're going to talk about this again when we get to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but mm. he would have this fight over over he did it with poltergeist he did it with this he did it with gremlins he did it with temple of doom it got to the point where they finally had to come up with a rating in between because this most successful director of all time was pushing that envelope over and over again yeah it goes to show just like how much i guess he sort of caved to rating boards Mm -hmm. because you compare this to jurassic park It's so fucking tame, and that's one of the reasons why I don't like it, because that movie can't decide if it wants to be a balls-to-the-wall horror movie or a awe-inspiring children's yeah. film. That's one of the reasons why it can't stand around. We'll get party. to that. And, and that's a decade later. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones movies aside, like, you look at the movies he did after this, they were much more reserved, like Always or Hook. Mm. But it wasn't until Saving Private Ryan where he really went back to this level of violence. He did Schindler's List, but that was a different kind of violence. That violence was very in-your-face as far as realism. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, sure. This is obviously fantastical to the level that would make Hammer Horror blush. Mm-hmm. And, and again, like it is still, you look at this, you look at the thing, this stuff still holds up as far as the practicality goes. Positively. Because I watched the melting effects in the Ant-Man movies. Mm-hmm. There's no comparison between what a computer can do, especially a computer that is operating at 40% capacity and half the working staff, versus a team that is dedicated to just melting a skull. There was a whole crew 
on this set that just worked on that one scene. You know what was great about this scene, too? As a kid, I felt like I was watching something I wasn't supposed to. And I think that's a lot of the power these movies have. We'll get to that next week as well, where these are movies where the guy who wrote the article called it out. This is stuff that was made for adults, but kids love. It walked that line so perfectly. I watched this, and no wonder why I grew up loving horror films so much. This was my foot in. And for those scenes where the ghosts come up and they're looking at the camera, they use mannequins that they filmed underwater with a fuzzy lens. Just these kinds of Hollywood magical effects are just amazing to me. Amongst all of this carnage, boys, don't forget our hero is still here. They are tied to a pole, and Indy's telling Marion to keep her eyes shut. Now, this is because he was warned about looking at the Ark when opened by the guy who deciphered the markings on the medallion, which is something I never picked up on. Those markings say, don't look at it. When I was a kid, I was like, how the hell does he know to close his eyes? Well, this is how. He was warned. It was that. It was, you can't look at angels while you're in a human form because the Bible says that angels are beautiful and horrific to look at and we see both sides of that here and it is amazing how 40 years later and they haven't changed these they could George Lucas it up and decide they're going to redo this ending they don't it, it largely stands in place and it's amazing how effective it still is could this just be a black bar they put that says censored <laughs> I feel like that's South Park episode <laughs> don't forget too. Matt, 20 years later, Spielberg would feel the need to put radios in for guns in E.T. digitally. That South Park episode, yeah. I mean, they really went after him on that, and then the big one for Crystal Skull, that's the second. Mm. Yep. Like, he got it twice. And we also, I should have mentioned, when they pull the arc up for the first time, notice they're not touching it. They're using poles to lift it up. That's because he was also warned not to touch it. And when they first open that, that box, there's a scene of Sala reaching for the arc and Indy hitting it saying, don't touch it, because mm -hmm. he was warned. They should have pulled the guys from A Christmas Story to put the fragile... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, somehow, Marshall Lucas has made her way back into the lexicon of George Lucas's most successful movies, because she made the observation that there was no closure on Indiana Jones and Marion's relationship. So Spielberg devised one more scene with Marion and Indy, which is why we get this scene after Porkins tells them that they have top men working on studying the Ark. <laughs> Another line I still use to this day. <laughs> yeah, I, I use that all yeah. the time. <laughs> you know what? I and it's, it's lost here in dialogue a little bit because the ending is so famous, but they got paid a freaking king's ransom to deliver the Ark to the U.S. military because it's, a, you know, did you find the compensation? Oh, the, you know, compensation was very adequate. Like, Marcus is happy as oh, can yeah. be. He got mm -hmm. paid. Which is weird because this is the 30s and we were coming out of the Great Depression. Yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> where, where was that money? <laughs> <laughs> Great point. So Spielberg devised the scene of Marion calming Indy down, telling him that she knows what she has here and offers to buy him a drink. Mm -hmm. The Ark is then rolled into storage and credits roll on Raiders of the Lost Ark, boys. Boy, I didn't think we'd have a podcast that would outlast Star Wars, but I think we might have. Before we get to the scores, how do you guys feel about this final scene? Was this a good payoff? The Ark, we're just seeing it thrown into storage. We're not seeing anything else really done with it. It's such an amazing cliffhanger without being a cliffhanger. It is that serialized type of ending. It plays upon the government. It plays upon things still being hidden. And it lets you know that there's so many more secrets that could be revealed or have already happened. How many times has this happened before with cover-ups? And I think it's extremely effective that way. As a kid, I didn't exactly understand it until it was explained to me. And it's just like, oh, wow. 
I don't know if you could end as great on any movie as great as you can on this one with the shot. And I'm a sucker for a matte painting. Yeah, I know. We haven't discussed it a lot, but there's a few throughout this movie, and I love the matte painting mm. here at the end. Yeah, it is well done. I like how is the final punctuation mark the object that we have seen people die over, including our hero go to wit's end to find it, is just yet another vessel in this seemingly never-ending warehouse. It's irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, which is sort of a, I think that's kind of a comment on American capitalism and, you know, our desire to just make everything ours until it loses all of its individuality, which is also a good microcosm for studio filmmaking. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, boys, scale of one to ten. What do we give Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or as Adam likes to call it, Indiana Jones and the... No, just kidding. <laughs> How do we feel about Raiders of the Lost Ark? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. There's not a lot of movies that I put up in my Mount Rushmore, my Hall of Fame, as movies that I will just put on and say that they're a perfect film. As Matt referenced earlier, no capes. I'm going to do another one. Ten out of ten. No notes. There's not a movie that I hold in as high regard and esteem as I do Raiders of the Lost Ark. From a storytelling perspective, I think it is fantastic, amazingly well done. From a crafting standpoint, I'm hard-pressed to find a movie that's better done. I think Spielberg, and I'm one to rip on Spielberg for a lot of things. I have fun with that. It creates some great fights with my best friend here on the other side of the mic. I don't think Spielberg has ever done anything as great as this movie, and that includes some of his Oscar-winning work as a director and nominees as a director. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is its a gem in the desert. It is an action-adventure. The religious storytelling parts of it, I think, are important, but I think are done with sensitivity, care, and are very well done. The acting, I think, is amazingly top-notch. The sound design, the production design is just phenomenal. You don't see something like that nowadays. Everything that's practical works so damn well. If this was the only one that existed, it would still matter just as much. As it kicking off a franchise, kicking off almost a the only real adventure series other than Bond at that time. I think it's it, its place in history is well-founded. Its place in movie history as well as pop culture just deserves everything. I will never get enough of this movie on film, of its soundtrack. You put a new ride in a park, I'm going to go experience it because I just absolutely love everything having to do with Raiders of the Lost Ark. I've never given this score before. It is a 10 on 10 for me. There's nothing I would change about this film, because this film wouldn't be what it is with even the smallest change. It's fantastic. I appreciate this film more every time I watch it, and that watch that watch number is massive at this point. But even watching it for this, I enjoy going back to this movie every single time. 10 on 10. Perfect film. I was just about to ask if you've ever given 10 out of 10, but you haven't, have you? Never. Just once. Wow. 10 out of 10 for Mr. Bunch. Goudreau? You know, I have this reputation for being, of the three of us, the snobbiest, and I freely admit that that's a decent assumption to have. But I cannot really come at this from a contrarian perspective or really be overly praiseworthy because I think this movie more than justifies it. I'm going to reference the Academy again because, yeah, this movie didn't win Best Picture and I think it rightfully should have, but if you look at the list of categories that this movie or that the Oscars celebrate, look beyond your Best Picture or acting. Look at cinematography, look at editing, look at sound design, you look at costume design, production design. There's not an area that this movie does not excel in. 
I defy you to find a flaw or a blemish on the real technical aspects of movie making, the craftsmanship that is incorporated into this movie. I think you'd be hard-pressed. And if you did manage to find them, I'm not talking about some nitpicky bullshit. I'm talking about some actual errors or things that could have been done better. I don't think there are any. I've said my piece on Spielberg. I think this is on his Mount Rushmore. In fact, I think it is the only head I would put on his Mount Rushmore. This stands alone in his filmography for me. There is Raiders of the Lost Ark as one, and then there is a bit of a drop-off. You know, I love Jaws, but look, still some early kinks in his style that he would refine by this point. As a movie, when I think of American cinema, like blockbuster entertainment, I don't think we've ever had a movie that matches the -the across-the-board high marks and everything that a movie should do. It should entertain you. It should leave you in awe in certain ways. It should make you laugh. It should kind of make you cringe in certain ways. It should really tap into putting yourself in that childlike place of just watching something. I think it does that. And unlike Adam, I have given 10 on 10s, although they're few and far between. But I have not done it on this site in the year plus we have been on here. Until today, I've got to give this a 10. And I ask myself, can I give this a 9? Because a 9 is still pretty high for me. But I realize this movie definitely deserves that stamp from me because it is not a movie I have in my top five. But if you were to ask me on any day, like, what's a, in your mind, what's a great movie with a capital G? This would definitely be one of the first ones that come out of my mouth. So, yeah, this is a, a 10 on 10 for me as well. I don't think there's ever been a less suspenseful recap that I'm about ready to give, given what I've said. But I'm just going to put it in the words of Spielberg, where he has said that this is the only film he has ever done in his entire career where he can sit down with his kids and watch it without any feelings of how it was made, without any thoughts of, we did it this way, we did it that way. To him, this is his perfect movie. And I am going to completely agree with that. That one little tiny bit where we don't know exactly what Marion or Belloc's intentions are in that scene cannot deter me from also giving this a 10 out of 10. I think it's superb filmmaking. I think, again, you know, I I watched The Fablemans last year and that movie depicted a kid who had a dream of becoming a filmmaker. And there are scenes where he depicts some stuff shot that he shot as a child that would grow to be stuff that would appear in this movie. I think we are seeing that kid just play in a sandbox, literally, in this movie. I think we are seeing two kids, two best friends, just kind of stand around and think, okay, how can we do this? How can we do that? And the best part about it was they realized that, yes, they had the passion for it, but they needed somebody to outline it and actually make it a viable story with his script writing. And the script writing in this, I don't think it's enough credit. As we've completely detailed, there are things introduced in the first and second act of this movie that are all paid off in the third act. That is something that it's not easy to make feel organic, but they are able to do it in this movie. And the final payoff, that final scene, my God, when I was a kid, I would watch that on a loop. Just be amazed by the effects. Even as a kid, I was like, I love the effects in this movie. And like Adam, I have watched it a huge amount of times I've watched this movie. And I am engrossed every single time. I hated the fact that I had to take notes for this podcast, actually. I took a lot of notes on this. I wish I could have just put my notepad down and just sat and watched, but I had to take my notes because I just love watching every single bit of what Spielberg and Lucas created here. And Harrison Ford, you can tell he's having fun as well. Karen Allen, Paul Freeman, everybody, uh, Ronald Lacey, all these guys and girls are just having a blast doing what they're doing here. 10 out of 10 for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Something tells me next week will not garner 
three 10 out of 10 ratings. <laughs> Next week, we get to a film that I was so looking forward to as a kid. I have great memories of that theatrical experience. I will share them next week. Boys, I'll go to Matt first because Matt, you have been the most outspoken about certain aspects of this movie. What are you expecting when we reveal Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom next week? Yeah, I've seen this movie once and I I had some strong thoughts on it. I've been very vocal about a couple things that I utterly detest and quite frankly, I don't imagine that changing, especially with where I'm at now. So I'm still going in with an open mind, but I freely admit that this is a, Raiders is a tough thing to live up to. But at the same time, I know Spielberg is capable of doing that again. But let's not forget, this is the same man who made The Lost World after Jurassic Park. Mm. And this was not a thing that he just did for the money when it came to Temple of Doom. So I don't know what to expect. I honestly don't. Because in my mind, as of now, I think it's the worst of the four. Hmm. Will I still feel that way remains to be seen. Setting something beautiful up. Adam, me and you haven't really discussed... We've discussed Raiders a lot, but we haven't really discussed our feelings, both of our feelings on Temple of Doom. What are you expecting when we get to Temple of Doom next week? Uh, I'm expecting to be fairly critical. I remember being very excited. I don't remember... I'll spoil a little bit. I don't remember my theater experience, but I know I must have just because of the year that this came out and everything else. As a kid, I remember some parts I enjoyed. As I got older, I know some parts that I don't. And now that I'm older still and with kids, uh, I I think this movie's going to have some boulders levied in its direction for some good reason. But I think there's some amazing stuff that happens as well. And I've definitely watched it more than once, so I have more watches than Matt. But it's not anywhere near my go-to indie film. In fact, I'll say Crystal Skull at this point has probably got more watches than this. But I'm very interested to go back into it and try to see if this movie is much more enjoyable than I remember it being. And I'm hoping it is, but that's not my remembrance. All right, so that's what we'll get to next week. What an epic conversation. Matt, I believe it's only been one other time that you and I have been doing this, that this has happened. That was at the other place a few years ago. So unbelievable that we have three 10 out of 10s here. I was not expecting three 10 out of 10s. I knew I was going to give it, obviously, but you two, wow, amazing. But doesn't sound like that's going to happen next week. Will it be universal? Stay tuned. We have so many other things coming up. Again, we have the cultivation of this retrospective, which is going to be a week of release review of Dial of Destiny. We have just a lot of week of release reviews. I don't know if we're going to have them by the time this is up, but we have a Transformers movie coming out. We have a Flash movie coming out, which has Batman, so we got to review that. We have a lot of shit coming out, boys, but if I'm going to take this journey with anybody, it would be with you too. So thank you for joining me. Until next week, when we do Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom podcasts, very dangerous. You go first. Thanks, boys. So once again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Well, made it. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
Careful, you might get exactly what you wish for. I wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. I should say you look rather lost, but then I cannot imagine where in the world the three of you would look at home. There's nothing you have that I could possibly want. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies. Mommies. and a retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. There may be hundreds of skulls at Agator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Edited by Garrett. Voiceovers by Adam. You're my best friend. Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Indy, Henry, follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. This movie, like Star Wars, was nominated for Best Picture. It did win for Best Visual Effects. Obviously did not win Best Picture, but... Should have won. What did win that year? I didn't even see. I think that was the year Reds won. Oh, God. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the Academy loves them some Warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. What is it? Yeah, 1981? No, it was... Oh, God, it was fucking Chariots of Fire. Oh, fuck. God damn, this movie should have won.
Yeah, well, to quote a movie that we'll be speaking about in a few weeks, they chose <laughs> You know, that park opened in 89, I think, in Florida, and it's still the only original attraction since the Great Movie Ride shut down. It is, yeah, because that was their answer to Universal. That was a working studio when that opened. It was Disney MGM Studios. That was just Hollywood Studios. And, yeah, now that Galaxy's Edge is open, I'm planning on going back. Now that it's been open a few years and I can not get trampled. Yeah, the three of us should go one day. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? And you take them the kids to Toy Story Land. You'll, ha- you'll, yeah, you'll love it. Yeah, well, that was the last time we went was when that opened because I told the story about being in the queue and seeing the Toy Story trailer, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought my dumb ass thought it was part of the ride. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ford. It's all Ford. Mm-hmm. Hold on, guys. Another plane. Okay. No, Jock, you know, that's coming. <laughs> the plane's not there yet. No. Someone's starting the plane. Uh, sometimes I hate living by an airport. Uh, Indy. He's slightly whiplash if he was actually competent. <laughs> Which is ironic because Alfred Molina played Dudley, uh, Snidely Whiplash in the Dudley <laughs> movie. Wow, nice. Not that I'm endorsing that. I'm not endorsing that by any means. That one is so... That movie's pretty bad. He's flown from one side of this galaxy to the other side, kid, and he doesn't believe in any mystical force, but he's got a blaster by his side. <laughs> Guys, I really have to use the restroom. I'll be right back. Yep. I can't believe this is back in feet. God, you're... I hope yeah, you I, go, I, Matt. I, I too. Uh-huh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pee as well, since I have, yep. I have the uh, opportunity. Ah, uh, fuck it. Might as well. Yep, make it three. You know, because in the the exposition scene with the, with the U.S. intelligence, they talk about the religious consequences, but it's what you would expect reading, you know, the, the what's the Jewish equivalent of the Bible? Torah. Reading the Torah, you know, it's like hellfire and... Marion looks fantastic. It's, it's great. I was watching this, I'm like, honey, I got a cosplay Disney bounding idea because her red parachute pants and top, like it feels great for the, for the time and the era, but just... Yeah, there's something really fun about them just walk, running through these streets and the villainous, and it's another departure. after we, It's not long since we got an action scene, but it's a different kind of action. There's a fun to this that isn't necessarily in the others. It's, it's a little more silly, a little more campy, but it's not taken unseriously. You actually feel some of the stakes here. The scene with the swordsman, it's been said about it forever. It still works. I think it's still a great way to do it. That legend grows, is there for a reason, but... Yeah, it's it's a really good time. It's a really good scene. Do we need to file stalking papers against you and Karen Allen? I'm starting to wonder. Possibly. Yeah, that's what I thought. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll wait till we get to Alexander Daddario eventually. Uh, <laughs> well, we already have. It. I, I received word that she's already filed. <laughs> Not everyone on this set got sick. As well as finding out that Belloc is digging in the wrong place. Is that better than my impression of... Han Solo from the Star Wars film? No, I guess not. <laughs> no, just more offensive. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, let's also remember, 1981, they cast a British man as an Egyptian and nobody complained. You're not kidding. <laughs>
They crowbar the well loose as Salah sees a statue that scares him. <laughs> this was a great scene where he just kind of goes, ah, and he looks at it and he goes, sorry, Indy. Fun, silly moment. It, mm-hmm. just, it breaks the tension. Absolutely, yeah. And I want to say they do something similar in the first Brendan Fraser mummy. They find an Anubis statue and someone makes a joke. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen that movie in years. Here, oh, it still holds up. Watch it. They get out. Oh, I already said that. So we're seeing Indy. Uh, hold on here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so they go right to an airfield where the Ark is. Yeah, and it goes to show just like how much, I guess, he sort of caved to rating boards. Because mm-hmm. you compare this to Jurassic Park, yeah. which mm-hmm. is, tame. it's so fucking tame. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like it. Because that movie can't decide if it wants to be a balls to the wall horror movie. Or a, you know, awe-inspiring children's yeah. film. That's one of the reasons why I can't stand Jurassic We'll get Party. to that. We're going to get to that. But, just, but yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who only likes Jurassic Park 3. We're like, going to get there. The yeah, we're going we're gonna to cover that oh series. De- I definitely have things to say about that, too. Indiana Jones, adieu. 